The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Aggressive Christian Mission Training Corps. That's a mouthful of a cult name. Also our topic this week. They've also gone by the Holy Tribal Nation, the Free Love Ministries, and the Life Force Team. That last one makes it sound like they were some kind of Avengers-esque band of superheroes. Definitely not superheroes. Uh, not super in maybe any way, except possibly super insane. Probably, definitely. Uh, a very recent Christian militant cult, Aggressive Christian Mission Training Corps, was founded in the late 1970s by married couple Leela and Jim Green. Leela would later change her name to Deborah after the biblical prophetess of the God of the Israelites and the only female judge mentioned in the Bible. Oh, continual name changes. We've been down that road before. Uh, and recently, with the Nuwabian Nation of Moors cult, New name, new prophet or prophetess identity, and same old cult game. This name transition, like most cult leader name changes, was of course a power move. It reflected Deborah's leadership status in the cult and her absolute authority. Very rare and interesting for a woman to be in charge of a cult. So many dirtbags who make cult headlines are men. I think it's because it's become easy because of so many men running cults to think that the quote unquote fair sex is not capable of perpetrating acts just as fucked up as their male counterparts. Deborah. May change your mind. She would do so many horrific things to her community members, to her own family, to many of the children unlucky enough to grow up in the training corps' compounds. That's compounds, plural, because the group moved around a fair amount due to undoctrinated, unindoctrinated, excuse me, locals refusing to patronize their businesses or they'd move once they got into some legal trouble. They'd eventually settle just outside of the tiny little community of Fence Lake, New Mexico, population 42. Very small, very isolated, census-designated place. Can't really call it a town. Stretched out along a lonely, little used state highway, not close to much of anything. Great place to get off the grid and reduce the number of ears and eyeballs, paying attention to the crazy little backwoods God game you're playing. And being a cult, what a weird game they were playing. May still be playing somewhat. Hard to tell if they still have any adherence or not. The heads of this particular snake have definitely been cut off and incarcerated, but their website, while not updated the past few years, still online, aggressivechristianity.net. 
interesting reading material on there. I'd be surprised if a few followers aren't still out there scattered around. Some probably living in or around Fence Lake, waiting for the end times apocalyptic battle Deborah had uh, had them training for for so long. Partially based on the original structure of the Salvation Army, the Aggressive Christian Mission Training Corps was originally founded in Sacramento, California as Free Love Ministries. But it would not be a place for freedom or for love. No surprise there, right? It would be a nightmare. As their little group grew, Deborah started wielding tighter and tighter control over her followers as a cult leader do. She claimed she spoke to God directly as one does as a cult leader and that one day members will be called to wage a holy war against demonic forces. And now she sits in prison. Uh, The big war she spoke so often of, you know, still of course hasn't come. I have to imagine she's still mumbling about any day now, (laughs) probably tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, to the few fellow prisoners and or prison guards who either have to be around her or are paid to be around her. Deborah's Army's members wore green berets and khaki military outfits and addressed each other by rank. Deborah and Jim as their brigadier generals, Deb being the undisputed leader. You can find a lot of pictures and videos of them online, and it is so absurd. It feels like an SNL parody of a weird cult rather than an actual cult. Bunch of weird doomsday-focused Looney Tunes playing Army out in the desert. Uh, the ACMT, M, the, oh my God, they have so many letters. The ACMTC flew under the radar until 1988 when a former member named Mara Schmeier successfully sued the Greens for forcing her to live for months in a storage shed with no bed or bathroom, punishing her for refusing to beat her infant and toddler. Spare the rod, spoil the baby who can't yet really understand why they're being hit. Forced to flee, the group tore down his commune and headed north and then south uh, soon thereafter. And what would follow would be nearly 30 years of abuse of more members. Finally, in August 2017, Deborah Green and her son-in-law, Peter Green, were arrested on various charges of abuse, including sexual abuse of children. Peter Green, a a manager at the ministry's Fence Lake location, will be charged with 100 counts of criminal sexual penetration of a child, while Deborah Green also faced charges of child abuse, negligent abuse, and criminal sexual penetration. Of course. Of course, those would be the charges. Uh, Why? Why do cults so often end up in this exact same place? Digging into more wolves and sheep's clothing today, some snakes hiding in the grass of some faithful. I find it so interesting that it's so hard to find examples of powerful men in cloaks, secret society types, molesting kids, all that Pizzagate, QAnon, satanic panic, mumbo jumbo. Real easy though, to find self-righteous religious extremists doing that shit. Real, real easy time and time again to find people claiming to speak for the good God doing the devil's work. Maybe we should all worry less about the possibility of devil-worshipping Illuminati types hiding in our communities and snatching our kids. Maybe we should keep a closer eye on the people sitting in the pews around us or standing behind the pulpit. Deborah's daughter, Sarah, will be one of their uh, one of the main witnesses in her mother's ensuing trial. Thankfully, in 2018, the group's leaders would be sentenced to prolonged prison terms. We'll follow a lot of Sarah's story today. Sarah's a badass. A boss bitch, as uh, uh, a listener threw that, threw that term out there a while back. I still love it so much. Uh, she's awesome. Luckily, Sarah made it out. Many others were not so lucky. Even Sarah still isn't entirely emotionally out. She still bears the psychic scar. She still struggles with guilt over not being able to bring her children out of the cult before so much damage was done to them, as, as do other members. Let's get into the rise and fall of aggressive Christian mission training corps and the insanity of Deborah Green in this week's true crime cult, 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 militant as fuck edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, possible tool of Satan, definite idolater, idolater, 
For sure, proud worshiper of Lucifina, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, praise Lucifina. She's been good to me lately. Uh, good boy, Bojangles, and hail Triple M. Real quick, if I seemed negative at all about the Sumerian research last week, I do apologize. I was so damn tired. I didn't realize how tired I was. Uh, feeling very refreshed as of writing this. Uh, got a got a, a vacation for the first time in quite a while. Randomly went on a tour of ancient Minoan ruins in Crete on vacation uh, between the last episode and this one. And talked at length about the Sumerians and early civilizations and, and with the tour guide and was happy to know what I did. And, and to see ruins built not long after theirs and hearing the tour guide talk about how smart we meat sacks had to be back then to navigate the sea by the stars, build without modern tools and blueprints, you know, have to figure things out without Google, make such incredible jewelry and bravely train for and wage war, you know, so long ago and, and figure out how to farm, store, trade goods, you know, uh, gave me an attitude adjustment. We can access more knowledge now, but we were also so, so smart thousands of years ago. I think I tend to be very dismissive of ancient intelligence. We, we had to be very smart in, to survive. I gained a lot of respect for our ancient ancestors, and I feel very humbled today. Happy to be human as well. Happy to be alive and appreciative of the many modern conveniences we have, thanks to those who lived before us, right? To people just building their knowledge generation after generation, toiling out in the hot sun, getting shit done so the rest of us could uh, enjoy, you know, modern opulent luxuries today like AC. So to the engineers, the doctors, the teachers, the construction workers, the truckers, the AC repairmen, the repair women, the shippers, the farmers, uh, the shopkeepers, the cooks, the waiters, waitresses, military, the artists, house cleaners, crop pickers, everyone else out there working, creating, providing services that make modern life so great in moments. Thank you so fucking much. Hail to working meat sacks and to the homemakers who give them space to work and the retired who worked before them and the young who will work. Hail all of you beautiful bastards. Many, many thanks. Uh, quick upcoming note for the tour, uh, stand-up tour, the Symphony of Insanity stand-up shows. My whole career, I have made myself available after shows to sign whatever, take pictures, say a few words, sell tour shirts, albums, etc. Been very appreciative of those who uh, give their time to me after the shows. Unfortunately, that will no longer be happening for the foreseeable future for a few reasons. I personally am no longer worried about COVID. I've had it. I've had the vaccine. I'm not around anyone who's vulnerable. And I'm a greater good guy, uh, which can come across as cold, I know, but it's how I'm wired. I, I think uh, it would be best at this point to open everything up in the name of saving businesses slash the economy uh, for the future generations. I think a greater return to normalcy will be in the best interest of a lot of people currently struggling greatly with their, mentally with their mental health. I think the media is selling irrational fear and creating more division than is necessary. And their constant beating of the Delta variant war drum is frustrating to me. I think it's more about clicks and ratings than it is about science and health and safety at this point. If it bleeds, it leads, and COVID still bleeds, so it still leads. But that's just me, and I understand you may feel very differently and have valid reasons for how you feel. If you work in a hospital, you may feel very differently, and if you work in a comedy club, you may feel very differently. And since I've been lucky enough to have a lot of fans go to basically unregulated meet and greets after the shows, I've needed staff to help sell the merch, to take pictures, you know, whatever, to be there to regulate it to keep things moving so we can get uh, set up for the next show. And I don't want to pressure staff into doing that if they're scared, concerned, whatever. I don't want to push my beliefs on them, uh, you know, and because we've maybe sold some tickets. Now the managers are pressuring them to do something they don't feel comfortable with. That doesn't feel right to me. Also because of COVID, I haven't done stand-up for a year and a half, and I need time after shows to review material, uh, get some food sometimes for the next show, think about what worked, what didn't, how to fix it so I can do my job to the best I can. Things are just different now, and I'm just ha I'm just happy to be able to tour. Uh, I apologize if this really bums some of you out. I do understand. I hope down the road to resume some form of meet and greets. 
I've immensely enjoyed meeting so many of you. I like a good handshake. I love a good hug. Things keep changing. I'll keep doing my best to roll with the changes, which is all we can do, I guess, right? Uh, and if you do want a tour shirt, they will be available at badmagicmerch.com. So again, I apologize if that was something you were really looking forward to. Uh, I've looked forward to it in the past. It just doesn't make sense at this time. Uh, let's talk about something positive. Proud to donate $15,000 from Patreon this month. Thanks in large part to our space lizards, to the August Bad Magic Productions charity, the Wildline Firefighter Foundation. Since 1999, the foundation has provided emergency support services to the families of firefighters seriously injured or killed in the line of duty and more. Families left behind. Many with young children often find themselves with few resources and the foundation steps in to help. Go to wffoundation.org to learn more. Thank you, uh, firefighters. Uh, great charity. Thank you, Wildland Firefighter Foundation, for all that you do to help firefighters. Uh, reminder that this next Monday, August 16th, the Bad Magic Street Team stickers go live on badmagicmerch.com. Head to the ever-evolving store. Logan Keith, our merch wizard, has it looking so fucking good uh, to get the details for how to participate in this year's street team and possibly win some free merch. And definitely get some free stickers if you check the store fast enough. Noon Pacific time, August 16th. Also, Cult of the Curious Cult Robes back in the store. Limited amount. Just in time for this very culty episode. And that's it. Now let's let's dive into today's madness. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, first up, I really like today's topic. I, but I think I'm just in a in a in a very uh, yeah refreshed mental place. Whatever the topic would be, I like I like last week's topic. It was just um, it was hard. <laughs> took took a lot of work to get my old brain around some of the concepts. Uh, but I will say, after it set, settled in, I am so happy. I feel like I, I learned a lot. Anyway. First up today, we're going to see what was going on culture and cult-wise back when Jim and Deb first began experimenting with spiritual extremism. They really went from one side to the other. Uh, uh, going to revisit why so many cults seem to have been born in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s, right? One of my favorite historical periods. Uh, we'll examine what the ACMTC was responding to from a cultural standpoint, including a look at the roots of, the, uh, of evangelical Christianity, the type of faith that they morphed out of. Then we'll look into how unique the ACMTC was as a female-led cult before hopping into today's timeline to see how this cult developed and uh, what they became before the invention, before the eventual incarceration of their leader. Uh, though the ACMTC did not make many headlines until a few years ago, it grew from the same seeds of the 60s and 70s flower child hippie movement that we have covered, you know, here before several times. Its core members were living the communal lifestyle, doing some pretty weird shit by the late 60s. Oh, the counterculture, the hippie revolution, flower power, all that came with it. I have to think about it. If I had a time machine, that's where I'd go. Uh, a lot of people were doing some pretty weird shit in the late 60s. Most of them sobered up eventually, realized it takes more to run the world than just talking about how great peace is all the time and getting high and selling wildflowers and hemp anklets. Uh, the late 60s and early 70s was a, to be fair, great and healthy awakening for some, for many. Many used America's social revolution to start living much more examined lives. Many started living a new life of purpose and intention, no longer just mindlessly walking in the footprints of their parents. Others maybe rejected the trappings of conformity a bit too uh, aggressively, to use our word of the week. Went a bit too hard, a little too balls to the wall when it came to running away from the life of their parents without really thinking about what life they were running towards. New and different is definitely not always better. Curiosity is a beautiful thing, but some doors are pretty hard to shut once you open them. And some doors should probably never be opened. What lies beyond them may be not worth exploring. Uh, Charles Manson was one of those doors. That batshit crazy wannabe rock star started spouting a whole bunch of race war mumbo jumbo when he couldn't get a record deal. His idiotic and convoluted notion of helter skelter, and he convinced his small family of followers to murder and help kick off that race war. 
uh, you know, to, th- to at least try to kick off this race war that didn't happen. Uh, if you listen to that early episode, do you remember how absolutely bonkers Manson's ideas were? Manson actually seemed to truly believe by the late 60s that tensions between blacks and whites in the counterculture boiling pot of the 1960s in America would erupt into a cataclysmic race war that would end in the slaughter of nearly all white people. This particular doomsday scenario was what he called Helter Skelter, named after the Beatles song. And Manson's Helter Skelter, black Americans would emerge victorious from an apocalyptic race war. Shortly after Manson helped kick this race war off, he preached that he and his followers would crawl down a secret hole in Death Valley. Yep, secret hole out of the desert. And they would then wait out the bloody war in a hidden underground city. So, you know, all seems pretty plausible, pretty reasonable so far. And then when the war was over, he and his followers would rise up from beneath the desert and rule over the victorious black victors at their request, uh-huh, of course, who Manson thought would be uh, incapable of governing themselves and desperate for some white men to come help them out, right? They would win the war and they'd be like, ah, fuck, n- now what do we do? And then Manson would be like, hello, I'm here to help. And they'd be like, oh, thank God. A fucking crazy-ass white guy with a swatch gun on his forehead. He's who we need to put in charge. So that seems to uh, at least partially explain uh, why his little cult didn't have any black members. Uh, Manson had heard about a water-filled cavern in Death Valley called Devil's Hole, which is actually a cool spot. Only natural habitat in the world for these cute little blue one-inch-long Devil's Hole pupfish. Uh, Manson was not interested in some rare species of fish, though. Old Batshit thought he found himself a magic door. A couple years before, he came up with his mumbo-jumbo. In 1965, 20-year-old Paul Giancontieri, John Contieri, and 19-year-old David Rhodes went skin diving in Devil's Hole. Equipped with only snorkel masks and flippers, the two teenagers dove into the hole, which is said to extend to a depth of over 450 feet, possibly over 900 feet, shaped like an inverted funnel. This dive did not work out for them. Despite a rigorous rescue effort, there are pockets of air trapped within a cave, or within the cave where someone could theoretically survive for a time. Uh, neither of the men were found. And Charles in charge knew what all this melt. <laughs> knew what all this melt? Knew what all this meant. Uh, He could read between the lines like almost no one else. He read the signs. Water cavern in the desert of unknown depth. Two dudes dive in. Bodies are never found. Come on. It's right there. Obviously, when combined with legends of underground cities in the American Southwest written by other lunatics, theosophists before Manson's times, and also combined with some Beatles lyrics, if you were smart enough to fucking connect the yarn in your basement war room to piece everything together, you could, could conclude that those guys had made it to an unknown and amazing city to wait out a race war. And where did Manson get his ideas about this race war from? The Beatles. Was not kidding about the Beatles lyrics reference. Manson became uh, obsessed with the Beatles' White Album, which included the song Helter Skelter. Manson thought that the Beatles were l- leaving him subtle, coded messages about the race war through the songs on the album that predicted both the war and the Manson family's eventual rule over the survivors. God, you gotta do a fucking lot of drugs. To get that place in your head. Uh, it, it makes sense, really. I guess, you know, adds up. Of, of course, the Beatles, who had already released numerous worldwide smash hit albums by the late 60s and were arguably the most famous and wealthiest band on earth, of course, they would want to sneak a broke, ex-con, highly mentally unstable, small-time cult leader and former pimp some doomsday messages. That's why they were doing their music. Did the Beatles make the White Album to demonstrate their absolute fucking melodic mastery of rock-based music? Did they record a postmodern avant-garde masterpiece still considered by many, if not most critics, to be one of the top 10 albums of all time because music was what they loved making and they were at the height of their considerable creative powers and they wanted to blow their fans' fucking minds? No! Come on! Are you fucking stupid? Wake up! They did it for Charles in charge. (laughs) Manson was completely out of his fucking mind by 1968. 
Uh, he first heard this album not long after it was released in November that year. He'd already claimed to find uh, hidden, you know, meanings and songs from earlier Beatles albums. They've been talking to him for a while. Uh, but the messages were bigger and more important, more urgent in the White Album. Obvious. Obviously. He interpreted prophetic significance in several of the songs, including Blackbird. <laughs> ah, such a peaceful song. And, uh, and Helter Skelter, you know? I love that this dude heard Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to arise. And he was like, ah, we need to get to the desert before, before the blacks kill all the whites. <laughs> uh, then he heard the Helter Skelter lyrics, you know, when I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide and I stop and I turn and I go for a ride and I get to the bottom and I see you again. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, bingo, bango. There's an underground city waiting for us to hide where we can wait out the war before climbing back up to the rule of the world. And his, you know, his fucking small group of followers like, God, oh, you fucking, God, he's so smart. How desperate does one have to be? How long do you have to stay really strung out on hard drugs to get to a place where you hear that from a dude who looked as like photogenically fucking insane as Charles Manson and think, yeah, 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 that's it. Thank, thank you, Charles. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Ringo. Thank you, Paul, John, and George. I always thought it was a Stones guy, but the Beatles, man, they really know what's going down, man. Ah, it's way too much fucking time in the desert doing hallucinogens. Uh, Manson did all this back when the Greens, who had found the ACMTC, were young counterculture hippies themselves, out in the woods in California, living as part of what they called the Bear Tribe. Same cultural shift that helped produce Manson helped produce them as well. Another crazy cult from this era we covered was the People's Temple, led by Jim Jones. Ah, oh, man. Still one of my favorite episodes. Think. Uh, the People's Temple started out as an idyllic, multiracial, utopian community. Ended uh, infamously in the jungles of Guyana when Jim Jones' followers committed the biggest mass suicide of all time. Well, some of them committed suicide on November 18th, 1978. Many of them were murdered. Jim pulled off all kinds of crazy. He got poor, disenfranchised young men and women, angered at the racism they saw in America. Many of them were African-American. Made them, made them believe it was the fault of white capitalists, everything bad that ever happened to them. He got his followers to buy into extreme Christianity, then eventually took them to a place of anti-religious communism. Things got so fucking bonkers in his cult, he convinced followers by the end, or near the end, <laughs> that he was the only true heterosexual left on earth, and that he would and could take the sin of homosexuality off the hands of male followers, men who were gay but just didn't know it, by sodomizing them. Fucking what? Very different kind of poopo loopholing going on, uh, you know, than the one we talked about with Jody Aries from a few weeks ago. He was fricking that butt to save you from sin. You get it? I mean, you can see the logic and power of God's rock-hard power of God's redemption, can't you? Unbelievable that he convinced uh, straight men <laughs> to be sodomized to keep them from going to hell for the sin of homosexuality. It's, uh, okay. Uh, there was the Synanon cult. Uh, we covered that in our Suck on the Elan School. Though initially meant as a drug rehab program, the 60s and 70s era Synanon grew far more radical, strongly encouraging its members to get abortions and vasectomies, eventually attempting to murder an attorney uh, prosecuting them by putting a rattlesnake in his mailbox. And there have been so many others we've covered. Father Yod, the Source family, right? David Berg and the Children of God, uh, Tony and Susan Alamos, the Lamo Christian Foundation, even the recent Dwight York and his Nuwabian Nation of Moors cult. All these cults founded in the late 60s or 70s. Uh, why were there so many cults forming at this time? I've talked a lot in past episodes about the counterculture being responsible for creating a lot of disillusioned youth, seeking different spiritual belief systems than their parents. And that's very true. To be clear, though, before digging into this era a bit again and, uh, you know, 
what about it seemed to have created so many cults. There have definitely been plenty of other cults formed in different eras. I just don't cover them as often as others here uh, due to generally two reasons. One, a lack of thorough source information. And two, the cult has not completed its life cycle yet. Yet. Uh, speaking to the lack of source information, pre-1960s cults just didn't receive the same documentary treatment and thorough investigations that cults of more recent years have received, right? Cults that kicked off prior to the 60s, uh, we just generally don't have the same quality of info on them because documentaries didn't start to become popular until the 60s and gritty investigative journalism uh, also just wasn't common prior to the 60s. But there were definitely cults forming all over the place before the 60s. Uh, the 1950s saw the formation of the still-around Aetherius Society, often described as a cult. Founded in 1955 by a former British taxi driver, Aetherius soon became a new age religion whose belief system uh, is built around the theosophical idea that a series of cosmic masters, mostly from Venus and Saturn, not from Jupiter, that's where the fucking the dumb masters live, I guess, uh, control the fate of humanity. Uh, additionally, they focus heavily on prayer and spiritually charging the earth, okay, uh, to make way for the next master, a messianic figure who will descend to earth in a flying saucer, Cool. Armed with magic, more powerful than the combined materialistic might of all the armies. That's, again, from their website. Maybe I didn't say that. Uh, same shit as a Christian doomsday cult just repackaged with some alien mumbo-jumbo. Instead of waiting for God's wrath, their followers await an alien messiah and a flying saucer who could obliterate the earth with his powerful magic, but hopefully will not. The subtitle on their website, Ethereus.org, says, Cooperating with the gods from space. Sweet. They have a website where you can buy cosmic transmissions uh, in the form of, you know, CDs or downloads. Uh, you can buy pendulums if you need like a cosmic pendulum. Uh, I don't know if you need a book on space yoga, <laughs> but you can get, you can get some of those. Uh, you can get a DVD on how to realize your inner potential. It's so much more. Uh, they have a very robust store. Most of their transmissions only cost six pounds, but the 12 blessings, well, that's going to set you back 60 pounds. I'd play it for you, but I'm not going to risk someone stealing my credit card information because I used it to buy alien blessings from a fucking lunatic's website. Uh, there's also the crazy cult, the Freedomites, aka the Sons of Freedom. They started in Saskatchewan, Canada, way back in 1902. Originally formed from a fracturing of different religious groups who had fled Russia to escape religious persecution where they were persecuted for being fucking maniacs. The Freedomites uh, were really into communal living, nudity, and anarchy. Not kidding. Uh, they quickly became infamous for all nude public demonstrations to show opposition to the material tendencies of society. You can find some great pics online that are very unintentionally hilarious. And in the 1920s and 30s, they burned and bombed a whole slew of public buildings in Canada while butt naked. <laughs> if you've never seen an angry group of early 20th century, you know, butt naked fucking hippies, all dirty, living out in the woods, uh, going to bomb some stuff, ah, you're missing out. Um, yeah, they wanted to show their disdain for the government. Nothing like flopping your dick and tits around in public to gain some respect for your protest. That's how, that's how people uh, know to take you serious, right? And uh, that's how they know that you're mentally stable. Uh, there was the Amana colonies of Iowa that began in 1856, existed in a very cult-like fashion until 1932. They kind of had that little uh, nation within a nation that Dwight York dreamed about. Seven little villages on 26,000 acres governed by a great council of elders. <laughs> who used to decide who got married, who got thrown out of the colonies, who ate with whom in communal kitchens. Uh, I, I Sometimes I fantasize about getting into a time machine and going back to like one of these councils, somehow getting into the council and then just like, maybe I have like a machine gun or something from modern society so they can't force me to leave. And I just ruin all their fucking meetings, just constantly interrupting like, nah, come on, it's dumb. 
Like these guys who just used to everyone just sucking their dicks because they got kicked out of the colonies. Like they have so much power in this little tiny, you know, fiefdom they've created. It'd be so great just to go in there and just ruin that for them. Now they're like, uh, Jebediah, you must marry Shoshana. Nah, come on. Fuck that. Jebediah, go do what you want to do. Man, live your life. Stop it. Stop ruining things. You're not welcome here. Ah, suck my dick. Get out of here. What are you going to do? I got, a, I got a machine gun. Go fuck yourself. Um, anyway, <laughs> went off, went off uh, the, the path here a little bit. Yeah, so they had these little villages on 26,000 acres governed by this council of elders, these fucking douchebags, uh, who decided who got married, who got thrown out of the colonies, uh, who ate with whom. They picked who you ate with in communal kitchens. Basically, almost all of your life choices, choices were made by the great council. And the council always comprised of old, stuffy white dudes. Uh, cult outwardly that came across kind of a, as Amish or Quaker in nature. Now their descendants make a lot of uh, pretty nice, uh, you know, high-quality fridges and freezers. Uh, not kidding. That's, uh, they've gone in a corporate direction. There was the Oneida community, a cult that operated from 1848 to 1881, a group that used to make a lot of fine silverware uh, and also really got their fuck on. This cult was big on fucking everyone. Uh, to give them some credit, it wasn't just the cult leader fucking all the other members. It was just everybody fucking everyone through their system of complex marriage, aka free love, for at least part of their cult life. I'm listening, Oneida community. Hail Lucifina. Uh, of course, this got pretty creepy pretty fast. Uh, excuse me. Women over the age of 40 were eventually asked to be uh, sexual mentors to young adolescent boys because these relationships had a minimal chance of resulting in pregnancy. No, uh, that's a relationship one could define as uh, pedophilia. Likewise, older men uh, were often introduced into, to young women or for legal purposes, children, uh, to sex, to teach them how to have sex, you know, also pedophilia. Uh, the niece of founder John Humphrey Noyes, Tirza Miller, would write a lot about this cult sexual practices in a journal not made public until 1993. So their secrets would stay, would stay secret for so long. She wrote about having sex with Uncle John and Uncle George. Oh boy. Actual uncles, not just a title. Uh, when these perverts talked about free love, they were not fucking around. Or I guess in a literal sense, they were fucking around. Didn't matter if you were related or not. Very pro-incest, this cult. Founder John even tried kicking off a eugenics program in this cult, setting aside some members, the most spiritual in his eyes, and only letting them fuck each other for a period of the cult's history. It was a breeding program designed to create what he called super perfectionists. And there were so many other pre-1960s cults. Of course there were. There have been cults for as long as there has been civilization, for as long as there has been religion. Uh, there have been plenty of cults that have kicked off, you know, since the 1980s as well, after the 60s and 70s. Uh, Keith Raniere's, you know, uh, Nexium cult that we sucked that came out of the MLM world. That didn't kick off until 1998. Hail the good God, Amway, maker of quality and affordable skillets, like the iCook 12-inch nonstick fry pan with lid available for home delivery. For the how can you not buy price of $167? Blessed be the savings. Uh, there was Lou Castro, aka Daniel Perez, and his little Angels Landing pathetic cult that didn't get started until the 1990s, and so many others. Up to 10,000 cults exist today in the U.S., according to psychologist Steve Eichel, a recognized international cult expert and president of the International Cultic Studies Association. And we don't know about a lot of them yet because no investigative journalism has been done on them. No documentary has, has been made, at least not yet, because, you know, their stories are still being written in many cases. They have not completed their life cycles and also many of them very, very small, like the Children of Thunder cult we once sucked. So more than any other era, back to the cult sweet spot of the 60s and 70s we go today, where there's a lot of information about these cults and uh, they completed their life cycles. 
the counterculture revolution years, the prime American cult formation years, this particular era of cultural turbulence just seemed to kick off a lot of interesting and horrific compounds. Let's do a quick refresher on just how turbulent these years were. After World War II, there was a surge in the number of young people with the baby boom. A lot of families being started. A lot of kids being born who would come become part of the counterculture. Uh, the birth rate went from a low point of 19 per year per 1,000 U.S. citizens during the Great Depression to a high of almost 27 per 1,000 in 1947. So you had a bigger youth population coming of age than in previous years in the late 1960s. At the same time, tech and media evolved to the point where you could make and distribute commercials, magazines, phonograph records, TV shows explicitly for young people. There was more sales money than ever before in marketing to the youth. It's always about money, isn't it? Uh, or often about, almost always. Uh, more kids in the, in the economy was more stable than it had been during the World War II years or during the Great Depression than preceded the World War II years. This generation was being marketed to an entirely new and more aggressive way, which ended up giving them more cultural cohesiveness than previous generations. They were watching, hearing, reading the same commercials, talking about the same TV shows, movies, music, etc. Also, the birth control pill approved for public use in the U.S. in 1960. And no surprise, big hit, 10 out of 10 boners approved. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, by 1962, 1.2 million American women are on the pill. The following year, that number almost doubles to 2.3 million. By 1965, 6.5 million American women are using it. American sexuality starts to change with less and less concern about an unwanted pregnancy. Previously, if you'd had premarital sex due to a high chance of pregnancy, guys just not loving condoms, right? The, oh, I'll pull out in time, I promise. Just this one time, then I'll start wearing condoms again. Uh, there was a good chance you'd be spending the rest of your life with your new husband due to the social stigma of raising a child as an unwed mother. You hoped that would be the case. Uh, whether you really loved the guy or not, getting married eliminated the powerful social stigma of being shunned from your family and struggling to raise the kid on your own. But now, in the 1960s, there was this newfound sexual freedom, sexual liberation that was reflected in the music of the era, which then led to further sexual liberation. It snowballs. More casual fucking leads to more talk of casual fucking, which leads to more casual fucking. Rock and roll, right? Rockstar has become more sexualized. Mick Jagger saying, let's spend the night together on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1968 blew America's puritanical mind. The Stones got banned from the show because of outcry from parents. But the kids, of course, fucking loved it. And the Stones went on to sell more records than ever. The band then releases Let It Bleed the following year in 1969, the title track, including the lyrics of well, we all need someone we can lean on. And if you want it, you can lean on me. She said, my breasts, they will always be open. Baby, you can rest your weary head right on me. Bleed it all right. Baby, come all over me. Uh-huh. This is very different than, uh, you know, Chubby Checkers singing, let's do the twist. Come on, do. let's do the twist. I mean, this is way more explicit than, you know, music had been a decade before. Two years later, 1971, the Stones released Sticky Fingers with a close-up of a dude's crotch for the cover. And this was so shocking to parents at the time, to many of them, almost all of them. So many other bands were making a sexual shift. 1969, Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin is singing about, I'm gonna give you my love and a whole lot of love. And by love, he means dick. Also, a lot of drugs are suddenly more available than ever. Bands are singing a ton about them too, openly and blatantly. On the Stone Sticky Fingers album, which went triple platinum in the US, selling over 3 million copies, there was the track, Sister Morphine. Was Jagger singing about faceless doctors, cocaine, morphine, crawling on the floor, speed, barbiturates, codeine, quaaludes, all legal in the 60s and early 70s, and still should be, fuck you, Nixon. Argument I've already made and explained. I'll be quiet about it going forward today. Uh, the Vietnam War is also dividing the youth and creating a fair amount of heroin addicts. The previous generation had not rebelled against w World War II, 
Fighting Hitler was pretty clearly uh, the right thing to do. Not so obvious with Vietnam. While young men were ready to die to save the world from a ruthless dictator, not as many were as eager to as, as they saw it feed the wealthy old men making money off the military-industrial complex. More and more young people starting to question Uncle Sam's motives. They're not unquestioningly saluting the flag anymore. They're questioning the integrity of U.S. political moves. Such a new thing. At least new in terms of how many people were doing that. There weren't too many anti-World War II or anti-Korean War protesters. They were around, but in very small numbers. And any little protest that did occur didn't tie into the ethos of a massive cultural shift full of all this new music, liberated sexual lives, new movies, new art, new lifestyles. So much new in the countercultural movement of the 60s and 70s. Freedom of expression fueled the civil rights you know, era, which led to further questioning over America's racist past. The level of freedom of expression displayed in the countercultural revolution. So many protests, again, just so new in America. Soon many youth are questioning damn near everything. They disagree with their parents about Vietnam. They disagree about drugs, sex, music, movies, and religion, right? They wondered if maybe their parents were wrong about God as well. And this led to a lot more spiritual seeking than the previous few generations had engaged in. And that would lead inevitably to some con artists and or people genuinely deluded enough to actually think they were a prophet or prophetess of God to take advantage of these young spiritual seekers and bingo, bango, cult, cult, cult. As more and more youth turned away from the organized religion that many of their parents subscribed to, and as many also began to explore other options than just getting married, getting a real job, quote unquote, and starting a family, some dirty ding-dongs figured out that it was a great fucking time to kick off a cult. And then there was backlash to all this new question, which would lead to more cults, a conservative withdrawal. Uh, as more and more people broke away from religion and from more conservative lifestyles than previous generations embraced, others moved in the opposite direction. And the ACMTC, they would be born from this cultural pushback. Many saw the counterculture revolution as a sign that the world was on a spiritual path to damnation, right? God was getting angry. God hated the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. Jimmy Page, obviously satanic. And soon the soul piper will have to be paid. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that's the devil's work. The hippies are in bed with Satan. This is a message that now gets to be preached more and more. You know, some crime and divorce stats start fueling this fear, especially with the mainstream media reporting on it constantly. The violent crime rate increased by 126% in the U.S. between 1960 and 1970. In 1958, the divorce rate, 2.1 per 1,000 people with 368,000 divorces. Uh, by the end of the 70s, the annual divorce rate would more than double, reaching 5.1 divorces per 1,000 Americans. Satan using cheap sex and drugs to destroy now godless American families. The end is near. Certain religious fundamentalists, particularly extreme evangelicals, see rising crime rates and drug abuse in the hippie movement as hard evidence that Satan is here on earth, that the end times are fast approaching. And this leads, again, to more cults. Let's talk about the rise of evangelicalism in America. In the 60s and 70s, evangelical—God, that's a tough word for me. Evan it's a tough word to say fast, right? If I did it like in a news anchor voice. In the 1960s and 1970s, evangelicalism experienced major growth in America. But then these episodes would be way more boring, I think. Uh, the new evangelicalism movement, also called the Jesus Movement, popularized by charismatic evangelists uh, like Billy Graham. He did more than anyone to popularize it. Born in 1918, Graham earned the title of America's preacher. His popularity reached the White House by the late 1940s. He was President Truman's spiritual advisor and would advise every U.S. president afterwards all the way to Obama. He would become widely popular in the 1950s, more so in the 1960s and 70s. The annual Gallup poll of the most widely admired, admired American men in the U.S. that began in 1955 featured Billy Graham in the top 10 
this is crazy. For the first 61 consecutive years, 61 years in a row, he is top 10 most admired American men. Wow. Uh, worldwide, an estimated 215 million people would attend his live events. An estimated 2.2 billion people would hear him preach in his lifetime. Billion. Born in North Carolina, he passed away in the same state in 2018 at the age of 99. And, and really active until, you know, right near the very end. Uh, and the aggressive Christian mission training corps uh, cult would arise from this evangelical Christianity that he espoused. Not that Graham would approve of them at all or a similar group. Uh, previous suck topic, the children of God cult also came out of this movement, right? David Berg's creepy fucking ass. And this movement remained sizable during the counterculture years. It, it fueled them. According to Gallup polling, despite the number of spiritual seekers looking for a new religion or no religion, the percentage of people who identified as Protestant under which evangelicalism falls did not drop much during the 60s and 70s. From a 1950s high of 71% in 56, it only dropped to 58%. I mean, that's a decent amount, but not a, not a crazy amount by 1979. In the 1960s, it never fell below 65%. Uh, harder to find stats on how many of those Protestants were evangelical, but worth noting that many different sources speak to a massive rise in evangelicalism and the majority of Protestants in the U.S. being evangelicals. Uh, a lot more fire and brimstone sermons coming from the pulpit as the counterculture becomes more and more popular. Uh, a lot more pastors worried about eternal damnation. Makes sense. More perceived sinning, more perceived punishment. In the U.S., evangelicalism, by the way, is an umbrella group of Protestant Christians who believe in the necessity of being born again, uh, who emphasize the importance of evangelism and affirm traditional Protestant teachings on the authority, and this is important, the historical authenticity of the Bible. Uh, evangelicals are diverse. They're drawn from a variety of denominational backgrounds, including Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Methodist, several other denominational churches, and almost all non-denominational churches. Uh, the term Christian fundamentalist is nearly but not quite synonymous with Christian evangelical. Evangelicals are a broader group than fundamentalists. They compose anywhere from 30 to 40% of the U.S. population. When you include cultural evangelicals, those who don't actively go to church or really even think deeply about the Bible, but still identify as being Christian, uh, who would go if they did go to church to an evangelical denomination. Uh, fundamentalists are a subset of this group. Hallmarks of funda fundamentalism included belief in the literal accuracy of the Bible. Earth was created in seven 24-hour periods. Humanity began with a man named Adam, a woman named Eve, around 6,000 years ago. You know, and then a lot of uh, brother and sister and cousin fucking apparently went on. Uh, and if dinosaurs did exist, you know, our first ancestors had to deal with some T-Rexes and velociraptors roaming about in the Garden of Eden, you know, trying to keep them from fucking their family. Uh, this kind of literalism doesn't mesh well with science and frankly, academia in general, as you can probably imagine. It's a uh, God said it, do not question it system of faith. And if you can't wrap your head around it, then it's, you know, God works in mysterious ways and just leave it at that. And while I have no doubt that many have found solace and comfort in this belief system, I've met many. Uh, I also have no doubt that a belief system so at odds with critical thinking at its core has led many into the arms of a cult leader. Why is Jim Jones sodomizing me? Well, God works in mysterious ways. Why is David Koresh fucking my young daughter? Ah, it's mysterious. Why is David Berg molesting basically all the kids? It's a lot of mystery. <laughs> it's just, you know, don't think about it. Turn the other cheek. A lot of evangelical and non-denominational churches while originating in Europe experienced substantial growth for the first time in the new world of colonial America. 
or early in the U.S.'s history. In the U.S.'s history, that religious freedom that America is founded on is why we have the most evangelicals per capita of any nation in the world now. Baptist, he was one example, started off in England at the dawn of the 17th century, an offshoot of Puritanism. Small group of believers soon bouncing to Holland to avoid religious persecution, then fleeing uh, from Holland back to England due primarily to uh, religious disagreement with the Anabaptists there. And their take on God soon took root in the new world. The first Baptist church formed in the U.S. was in Providence, Rhode Island, way back in 1638. And in America, a land of new ideas, like many other newer denominations, uh, you know, across the Atlantic from big established Christian churches like the Catholic Church or the Church of England, uh, it caught fire. And so did so many competing Protestant offshoots. America founded primarily as a Protestant nation, and most of the early Protestants were evangelical. Significant minorities of Roman Catholics and Jews, and Jews did not show up, uh, you know, until between 1880 and 1910. So for a long time, you know, ev evangelicals pretty much ruled the roost. Significant numbers of other religions wouldn't come until even later. The U.S. has long had the greatest overall number of evangelicals of any country in the world, with over 93 million identifying with some form of evangelicalism today. Uh, guess who's second in the world with the most evangelicals? Come on, guess. Play along. I bet you won't get it. I certainly did not. Do you have a place in your mind? China. Is that surprising? What's to me? 63 million in China and followed by, do you want to guess again? I would not have seen this coming either. Nigeria. It's the U.S., China, and then Nigeria. Nigeria, Nigeria with 58 million. And I believe Nigeria has the most, I didn't put this in my notes, but I'm pretty sure it has the most per capita now. So sorry if I said earlier, I went off notes and might've made a flippant comment about the U.S. having most per capita. Now the U.S. has the most total amount. I believe Nigeria has the most per capita. Three out of five evangelicals, thanks to decades of missionary work, now live in Africa or Asia. Uh, there's a lot in Brazil as well, 47 million. America's expansion West uh, led to a substantial growth of evangelical Christianity in this nation. By the early 19th century, Americans increasingly had become a people in motion, right? Constantly moving across social and geographical space. Due to all this movement, families, towns, occupational structures lose a lot of their traditional capacity to regulate individual and social life. You're not living in the same village that your families lived in for 15 generations. Uh, various evangelical groups step in to fill the desire for structure and community. New groups pop up during a period now known as the Second Great Awakening that lasts from 1790 to 1840. Tent revivals become a thing. Traveling charismatic ministers whipping listeners into shape in town after town into a, you know, whipping them into a religious ecstasy. An emphasis on salvation is preached to those uh, made anxious or even frightened by a continually changing world around them, right? They don't have, nobody knows who they are in their town, right? Nobody knows their grandma. Uh, you know, they just, it just, it's uncomfortable. Humans psychologically don't do great in some ways with change. And then this gives them kind of a tie to their past. These traveling preachers coming around and be like, well, you know, you're bounced around, you're scattered amongst the earth, but you're still God's children. Um, spiritual messages gravitate uh, not towards God's love by many of these preachers, but towards God's anger and wrath. Fear has always been a powerful recruiting tool. Fear is a powerful, cohesive tool. Get everybody afraid. Get them all like, wrapped up and scared about the same thing. Aggressively exploiting a wide variety of new print media, evangelicals began launching their own newspapers and periodicals. They distribute millions of devotional and reform tracts. By 1835, the cross-denominational American Tract Society and the American Sunday School Union alone distribute more than 75 million pages of religious material and are capable of delivering a new tract each month to every household in New York City. By the 1830s, these devices, in conjunction with the aggressive revivalism that was the hallmark of the new evangelicalism, had assembled a huge new evangelical public. Also during the Second Awakening, more and more of these churches fracture into more and more churches. Offshoot after offshoot, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, some of the bigger offshoots. 
non-denominal churches, which began to sprout up for the first time in the 18th century, fucking explode in the 19th century. Check out these numbers. According to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, there were 500 different Protestant, uh, excuse me, there were 500 different Protestant Christian denominations in 1800. 500 different ways to interpret the Christian Bible. And that does not count the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Oriental Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, the Armenian Catholic Church, or any other church that's separated from the Catholic Church in Rome prior to the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Holy shit, over 500 different Christian churches who all think they are interpreting the Bible correctly. Everyone else is wrong to various degrees. And that number would fucking explode in the 19th and 20th centuries. By 2012, over 500 different churches would continue to spiral out into, wait for it, roughly 43,000, 43,000 different Christian denominations worldwide by 2012. By 2025, in just a few years, that number is expected to hit 55,000. 55,000 versions of, no, no, that's not what God meant when he wrote that. Get out of here. So much disagreement has led, of course, to so much confusion. How could it not? Get these people in the same room. Your head's going to spin so fast, your fucking neck's going to break. Trying to keep track of how you're supposed to worship the Christian God and what the Christian God expects of you. A big rise in these numbers comes from a fundamentalist, modernist controversy that arose in the 1920s and 1930s. All these Protestant churches, many evangelical, become divided over new intellectual and theological ideas such as Darwinism, right, evolution, uh, how strict biblical interpretation must be. Those who embraced more liberal, secular ideas become known as modernists. And those who reject them become known as bringing this back now to fundamentalists. And out of the fundamentalist branch comes the aggressive Christian mission training corps. A lot of cults seem to come from evangelical fundamentalism. Like other churches in the evangelical movement, these early fundamentalists preach and continue to preach, or preached and continue to preach that Satan's demons were coming to earth. And thanks to the rise of evangelicalism, this was a message many American Christians were already very used to hearing by the time, you know, groups like the ACMTC comes along. The ACMTC's scriptural inter interpretations are fucking crazy, but with so many different interpretations out there, like I spoke of, easy for people to get spiritually lost and confused uh, and, you know, and easier for cult leaders to take advantage of that feeling of being lost and that confusion. This groundwork I've just laid out is why the overwhelming majority of cults in America seem to come out of Christian fundamentalism. It's gotten so unbelievably fractured. I don't think the average parishioner really knows what the hell is going on anymore. Most of the fundamentalists I've talked to about religion over the course of my life don't seem to have much intellectual understanding regarding their belief system. They just believe. They want to go to heaven. They don't want to go to hell. Their friends and family go to the same services. It's comforting to be on the same team. You know, tribalism, it's always been a strong part of human civilization and society. So they listen to the confusing messages their pastor preaches and they try to make sure they're not fucking up too much so they get, you know, uh, into heaven. So they don't get denied to heaven. And I don't say this to say that they're stupid. I find uh, most of them are not stupid at all. Uh, of course it's hard uh, to understand fully their beliefs. There are roughly 50,000 different opinions regarding how you're supposed to worship Jesus right now. How the fuck are you supposed to understand anything other than the core message of, I love Jesus and he loves me. And if I pray and ask for forgiveness and try my best, he'll let a sinner like me Live in heaven forever and ever, amen. With that much lack of a consensus over what the Bible is actually telling us, coupled with basically universally agreed upon fear that if you don't get it right, you're going to burn in hell, of course there's going to be a lot of cults based in evangelical Christianity. It's fucking perfect for forming a cult. You have a large number of confused, scared people 
Many of them who are very good people who want to do the right thing, who want to get it right, convince a few of those people who are probably extra desperate and down in their luck due to unfortunate life events and circumstances, people who also maybe not born with a strong bullshit detector, people who've been victimized by their parents or others already don't possess a strong sense of how to stand out for themselves and fucking bingo, bango, you got yourself a new cult. Now let's really get into the ACMTT. First establishing how unique it was to have a female cult leader and then it's cult timeline time. Lilla Green, a.k.a. Deborah Green, a.k.a. fuck this lady. Uh, one of the many cults we've discovered, uh, or of the many cults, excuse me, we've discovered, we've covered, Jesus Christ! Trying to fucking give so much information out. My brain gets scrambled. Of the many cults we've covered here on Time Suck, this is the most truly female-led one from start to finish. Susan Alamo, right? Bonnie Nettles, they ran the Alamo Christian Foundation and Heaven's Gate cults, uh, respectively. But then when they died, that's when shit got way crazier with Tony and Marshall taking over. Uh, from Charles Manson to Jim Jones, it's male fanatics usually run the cult show. Uh, for Christian groups, the Bible has served as a helpful justification for this patriarchal structure, right? As 1 Timothy 2.12 commands, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. There have been plenty of cults with women in positions of power, however. In fact, female, female higher-ups have been crucial to the growth of most, I would say, male-led cults. They're the ones who reassure new members, especially uh, female members, that the dude in charge is, he's good dude, very wholesome, probably not going to fuck you for a little while, uh, he's holy, all that bullshit. And the Nexium cult, Keith Raniere's second-hand woman, Nancy Salzman, helped develop the multi-level marketing scheme and many of the cult's tactics. The Nexium, many of the higher-ups were women who recruited other women to be victimized by Keith, like Smallville actress Allison Mack. Uh, Jim Jones had Carolyn Layton, his lover for around a decade, and the person who, aside from Jones, was the most instrumental in the massacre at Jonestown. Uh, FLDS cult leader Warren Jeffs, while he was still a free man, had Naomi Jessup, his favorite wife, and the woman who would most often provide counsel during his trial uh, and sentencing for child abuse and molestation. These women and you know women like them, often just girls when they become involved with cult leaders, are indoctrinated in the same way as many other members of the cult, and then they manage to gain some sort of trust with the leader, which leads to a bit of power, and then they help other, you know, cult members be victimized. Uh, we meet sex, men and women alike. We always seem to crave power. Uh, these women are often tasked with recruitment, often with bringing new women or girls into the mix for the leader's sexual gratification. In the presence of a matriarchal figure, new members often feel more comfortable or cared for, right? Mama's going to take care of them even though they're anything but safe, very strong maternal instinct in many of us to be nurtured by mommy. Uh, Non-cult leader Rose West from our serial killer suck a few weeks ago, right? She used that instinct to lure a fair amount of young women to their demise. So women definitely play power roles in a lot of cults. They are often matriarchs, sympathizers, silent leaders, wielding power from behind the scenes. But the leader tends to be a man. Generally a ridiculously sex-crazed man. Chasing that dick! Uh, think of unparalleled American pedophile Dwight York from a few weeks back. God, he chases dick like nobody's business. Uh, these dudes whose primary motivation seems to be objectification, objectification, excuse me, excuse me, commodification and sexual enslavement of women reinforce a theme that culture led mostly by walking insatiable boners. But not all. Sometimes a puss wants as much power as a dick. Some vagina owners, just as batshit, crazy, power-hungry monsters as men, like Deborah Green, a leader of one of the several female-led cults we have not covered yet. Of course, there are many others. Between 1968 and 1975, Australian Anne Hamilton Byrne, leader of a cult named The Family. She preached a mix of uh, Christianity, Eastern religious doctrine, yoga, and insanity. Members of her sect were reported to have stolen babies while others were brainwashed into handing over their children to Hamilton Byrne and aunties 
to be raised as part of a so-called master race. Uh, the children reported having their hair dyed platinum blonde, being drugged with LSD, beaten and starved. Maybe we'll suck them someday. As recently as 2012, Sylvia Mraz was born as a practicing, uh, was both, excuse me, a practicing serial killer and a cult leader, using the bodies of her members for human sacrifice in Sonora, Mexico. She had two 10-year-olds beheaded to gain favor and power from Santa Muerte, Our Lady of the Holy Death. Uh, but those ladies and many others, tales for another day. Today, we're covering Lilla Carter and the Christian Mission Training Corps cult she led. Lilla Carter, a.k.a. Deborah Carter, a self-proclaimed prophetess, she spoke for an angry God and ruled like an angry God. And she was the only one who spoke for God. I find this funny. When her husband once asked why he didn't receive visions too, come on, why can't God talk to me? She told him straight up, you're not the source. You're not the vessel. Yeah, shut the fuck up, Jimmy. Sit down. I'm trying to listen to God right now and you're annoying both of us. Like so many cults, Deborah and Jim controlled members by keeping them confused, tired, increasingly dependent on the cult for their survival. Their finances were controlled. Their contact with the outside world, extremely limited. Their access to proper food, water, basic hygiene, medical needs, strictly controlled. Shit was real strict in their cult. They were in God's army. The cult structure uh, they imposed to do, uh, you know, to run their cult was very militaristic. Their fearless leader was General Deborah. Members walked around in public in Marine-style clothing with a golden-winged logo on their jackets. Male members donned short hair, polished shoes. Jim and Deborah started out as colonels. Uh, later became bridge air generals. <laughs> I love it. I love that they leveled up as time went on. First time I've come across something akin to stolen valor in a cult city. Excuse me. All their military talk uh, makes me think of that uh, monk drill sergeant from the Dark Ages suck. What the flip are you doing, Private Anderson? Are you passively being a follower of Christ? Are you hoping and praying that heathens will casually find salvation? That ain't gonna gosh dang get it done, mother trucker. Start screaming, get in people's faces, wave, uh, uh, sing, sing wildly around on the side of the road, wave signs, yell into their souls, make your eyes water. When you, when you go apeshoot for the Lord, beat the gospel into their flipping brains for it is better than the fiery pits of heck. Like many Christian fundamentalist groups, they believed in spiritual warfare. The idea that angels and demons fight for our souls all the time. God ordained war. Deb Green has heard saying in one video clip, war is of God. God is a militant God. So let's go to battle with these flipping mother truckers in today's Time Suck timeline, right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, Read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks again for listening, Meat Sacks. I appreciate it. And now we head into an aggressive Christian mission training court timeline uninterrupted. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a timesuck timeline. Starting in 1947, that that date is solid, but 
Not going to be a lot of concrete dates in this timeline. Uh, the ACMTC get a pretty low national profile to skirt by for years. No one's written a definitive book on them. And Lilla, a.k.a. Deb and Jimmy haven't been real forthcoming about all the dirty shit they've done or who they actually are. Also, the local press back in Fence Lake, New Mexico, uh, didn't do a real good job thoroughly covering the cult's activities because the press didn't exist there. Hard to keep a paper going when your max circulation is about 30 different homes. Not having any local press really helped the ACMTC stick around a while longer, uh, but we were able to patch together uh, plenty, to, uh, you know, through various New Mexican press coverage and some national articles to get, you know, uh, plenty of information for this timeline. And we have the Colts website, thank God, for some extra comedy. Okay, back to 47 now. Lilla Carter, born in 1947 to a working class family in Sacramento, California. Born the right year to become a California hippie. She'll be 20 years old for 1967's epic summer of love. That's where I'm going in my time machine. Uh, now, not a lot is out there about her early childhood. Her father was allegedly an alcoholic. Her parents divorced when she was young. She was dirt poor. As a college student, she worked at a movie theater and she ate pop where she ate popcorn to save money on food. Uh, apparently, she was really into Elvis and the Beatles, prompting her to confess later, the seeds of rock music were planted deep within me. Little did I realize as the years passed and the rock music is all capitals. Uh, got rock here. This is from their website that my life would follow the trend. And as the music, which was to lead a generation into rebellion, drugs, illicit sex, and bondage to sin, that I too would become one of many caught in the web of mesmerizing sounds. I seemed to flourish on wild, wanton music. So at one time, Lilla seems like she was actually fucking cool. Doing drugs, maybe fucking in a van outside a Jefferson Airplane concert. Like you're supposed to do when you're a teen, lucky enough, to be born in the 1960s. You don't fucking waste it. In the early 20s, at the end of the 60s, her younger brother dies of lung cancer and grief-stricken. She seems to have stopped going to college, joins a so-called back-to-the-land collective called the Bear Tribe. Oh, frick yeah. Based in the remote Sierra foothills of Northern California, the Bear Tribe hosts a mix of hippie and American Indian ideologies. I'm assuming they definitely smoked a shit ton of peyote. A lot of weed. They for sure had a drum circle. And they absolutely fucked each other's brains out in the woods. I also believe that uh, they had wild, untamed, unkempt pubic hair, said far out a lot, and that the smell of patchouli almost masked the powerful B.O. coming out of their bodies. Uh, Leela, who claimed Sue Heritage, threw herself into this new life, married another member, Jim Green of Kentucky. They met in the Bear Tribe. Leela and Jimmy, not casual hippies, right? They Hardcore. They went balls to the wall. Balls to the wall. Uh, they lived out in the woods. Right, the the uh, later born agains often do before they become born again. They went deep into having a good time, and then eventually felt so much guilt over all that fun sinning they were ready to overcorrect. Man, I grew up around that crowd. Crowd. Uh, my grandpa Papa Ward used to joke about the bar crowd and the church crowd in Riggins, Idaho, being the same crowd. They would just swap members back and forth every few years, and that was very true for many years. Right, they'd go get drunk, chase their dick around, chase their lady ween around town for a few months, few years, then repent, repent, repent. Right, get uh, you know, really into the church for a few years, and then go get bored, and then go back to drinking and fucking. Not true of every place, I'm sure, but definitely true of Riggins in the 80s and 90s. A uh, Bear Clan lover, James Green, he was born in 1945. As a teenager, he hitchhiked to California, where he later became involved, you know, in the hippie lifestyle and the 1960s revolution that let and that led him to the Bear Clan, which led him to Leela. Jim uh, started going by Buffalo Sun, <laughs> and he experimented with blood ceremonies. And found pleasure inside of pain. Ah, oh, shit, these two are going hard. Getting weird in the woods. I read all this is, uh, you know, they, they got way into some hard drugs. Got into some real freaky fucking. 
They probably even encountered some shrub sluts from time to time hiding out there in the bushes, waiting to slide into someone's relationship. Throw back to the vampire of Sacramento suck if you're really confused. Uh, Buffalo Sun and Debbie Ding Dong, they were living that minimalist, hedonist lifestyle for a while. Uh, a former member of the AC, um, of the, God, their acronym drives me crazy, <laughs> of the ACMTC, uh, said who followed the Greens from the Bear Tribe to the cult, Jim used to run around in a loincloth and howl at the moon. We used to run around the mountains and live in teepees. And why was Jim howling at the moon? Well, Jimmy Bear, Jimmy Buffalo Sun was doing a bunch of crank. Uh, you might know crank by its more common name of meth. Uh, Buffalo, Buffalo Sun snorting meth in the woods, you know, wearing a loincloth, cutting himself, howling at the moon, and fucking Debbie Ding Dong. Nice. Uh, about time we had some meth in one of our tales again. When Jimmy Buffalo Sun was high, he would apparently spend a lot of time throwing his hunting knife around and screaming, kill, kill, kill. <laughs> I love details like this. So Jimmy, clearly very mentally uh, stable. Uh, Jim would later blame all his crazy antics on the music. Wasn't his fault. Wasn't his personal responsibility for doing that. No. You know, he, he would say the blaring hard rock music provided inspiration to my insane frenzy. It was the fucking Beatles doing it. I don't know if it works like that. I've listened to a lot of hard rock music. Very loud. A lot of metal. It's way harder, more explicit than whatever Jimmy was listening to. And I never once had the urge to snort a bunch of fucking meth, run around in the woods wearing a loincloth and start throwing a knife around yelling, kill, kill, kill. I think that was all Jimmy. He clearly had some demons. Uh, and, and I bet the crank was doing more of the heavy lifting when it came to his antics than the music was. Especially awesome late 60s music. What hard rock is he even talking about? Black Sabbath? Come on. Zeppelin? Get out of here. The Stones? Jim Morrison? Right? Remember when you pumped up the volume to the doors, light my fire? And then all of a sudden we're like, I need a fucking knife right now to kill someone with. <laughs> if that happened to you, that was not about the doors. That was about you. Uh, 1971, the Greens moved to Montana. Lilla is 24. Jimmy Buffalo's son's 26. They were Lilla would later describe on their, uh, you know, cult website, hippie wanderers, desolate, chasing false gods and living only for darkness. I read this as the good times were catching up with them a bit, right? Doing a bunch of drugs in the woods in your early 20s is awesome for a weekend, not for several years. All good things in moderation. Seems like the Greens were living in hard times in the early 70s. The flower child movement was winding down to an end and those who hadn't found any commercial success in the counterculture were now suffering the effects of not having a fucking life plan and just doing a bunch of drugs and, you know, not really thinking about much else other than keeping the party going. Alilla attempted suicide three times in the years before her born-again Christian conversion. And then one day, as fate would have it, Jim brought home a man he'd met while hitchhiking. Perfect. That, that's when you know that your life is going in a good direction. <laughs> when your epiphany comes from hitchhiking. The man told him about Leela, uh, uh, you know, about Jesus' message of redemption. My heart broke. Leela wrote later, I was such a miserable mess. Sin had done me in. Uh, the man led uh, the couple in prayer. With that, according to Jim, we changed gods. Okay. So they're at rock bottom. They're looking for anyone to kind of tell them what to do with their life. And they find this guy. This message always annoys me. Sin had done me in. No, it didn't. Overindulging in hedonism and not having a life plan did you in. Don't need the devil to just make dumbass short-sighted decisions. We're all capable of doing that on our own. Saying sin did you in reads to me as, uh, as illogical as someone who uh, gets really obese saying, well, cake did me in. No, you choosing to eat way too much cake did you in. Plenty of people have a fantastic relationship with cake. Cake is not the problem. Choosing to forsake vegetables, lean proteins, and complex carbs in favor of continually praying at the altar of cake, that's going to fuck you up. I've done plenty of drugs. 
I've engaged in plenty of quote unquote uh, sin, you know, poop hole loopholing and so forth, and I'm doing fine. I didn't get carried away. I realized early on that I don't have an addictive gene. Uh, I could go hard and then stop. I paid attention to how my body and mind responded. If the pull would have been too strong, I'd like to think I would have stopped or eventually gone to rehab. And I know that's easy for a non-addictive person to say. I know that. But I did think about it at least. I wasn't mindless, right? I found out what was right for me. And, and I wish more people would do that. Because a lot of people, it feels like they just do not think about the future in any real sense whatsoever. And that's just not a good plan for life. And look, good for anyone who finds God and then pulls themselves out of the gutter, truly, if that's what you think you need. But a good secular rehab center, better choices, and finding your why, a la Viktor Frankl, that has also worked for many. Focusing on a positive tomorrow, putting in daily work to put a practical plan together for tomorrow, to stick to it, to pay your way through life, uh, that can be its own redemption. 1972, Sarah Green is born to Jim and Leela, their first and only daughter. Her younger brother, their only son, Josh, will be born the following year. The family, all in now on fundamental evangelical Christianity, goes on a series of missionary trips to Panama, Aruba, Nicaragua, where they blame their previous wanton and hedonistic ways on the devil's music and on a satanic counterculture. It was the hippies and the Beatles, and it was the meth, and Jesus saved them, uh, you know, from having good sex and listening to awesome music. In 1971, uh, 1978, after becoming Christians, Leela and Jim, James Green both serve in Miami Salvation Army now. This will later give the, uh, them the inspiration for the ACMTC's military structure. Like the Salvation Army, ACMTC's emphasis is on spiritual warfare against Satan and his demons. And here you thought they were about thrift stores and donation drives around the holidays. The ACMTC may have even taken its name from a sermon given by Salvation Army co-founder Catherine Booth titled Aggressive Christianity. Leela may have found inspiration in the Salvation Army's female leadership. Catherine Booth was the co-founder of the Salvation Army with her husband, William Booth. Born in 1829, Catherine was raised in the pious and sheltered world of small-town Victorian England, where her mom was the model of Methodist piety. In her teenage years, Catherine suffered from a spinal curvature, was forced to lay in bed for months at a time. She read theological literature voraciously, especially the writings of Charles Finney and John Wesley. She soon not only became assured of her own salvation, she also felt that she was called to join public ministry. When she heard many fellow Christians suggest that a woman's place was in the home, not in missionary work, she wondered why the Christian church, which preached a liberating gospel to both men and women, would keep women from occupying positions of authority in the ministry. In the early 1850s, she met and married William Booth, a young preacher who had just started to make a name for himself. When she shared her emerging convictions with her new husband, he said, I would not stop a woman preaching on any account. So he skipped a couple verses from the Bible. Interesting. Uh, he'd remain true to his word uh, just under a decade later. Before then, he pushed his own new brand of aggressive street ministry. William Booth had embarked upon his, ministerial, uh, his ministry career in 1852, uh, desiring to win the lost multitudes of England to Christ. He walked the streets of London to preach the gospel of Jesus to the poor, the homeless, the hungry, the destitute. He found a market for this kind of preaching that was untapped at the time. People weren't really doing this at this time in this place. He preached to the people who weren't allowed in traditional churches because of their nefarious reputations, to thieves, prostitutes, gamblers, drunkards, the people Jesus actually hung out with. Uh, William Booth abandoned the conventional concept of a church and a pulpit. Instead, taking his message to the people, his enthusiasm, non-traditional methods led to disagreement with his original Methodist church leaders back in London. As a result, he withdrew from his church, became a member of a more evangelical Methodist Reformed church, traveled throughout England, conducting evangelistic meetings. But that church also was not comfortable with a guy who wanted to be a full-time street preacher. So then he struck out on his own and became non-denominational in his preaching. In 1865, William Booth was invited to hold a series of evangelistic meetings in the working class and crime-ridden East End of London. 
He set up a tent in a Quaker graveyard and his services became an instant success. His renown as religious leader spread throughout London. He attracted followers who were dedicated to really fight aggressively for the souls of men and women. In 1867, Booth had only 10 full-time workers, but by 1874, that number had grown to 1,000 volunteers and 42 fellow evangelists, all serving under the name The Christian Mission. Booth assumed the title of general superintendent. His followers then began calling him just general. Known as the Hallelujah Army, which is a lot like a regular army, but 100% worthless in an, in an actual battle, uh, the, the converts spread out to the east end of London into neighboring areas and then to other cities. While reading a printer's proof of his ministry's 1878 annual report, Booth noticed the statement, the Christian mission is like a volunteer army. And then he crossed out the word volunteer, wrote in the word salvation, the Salvation Army. That's how uh, the Salvation Army was born. Catherine, meanwhile, would finally start preaching in 1860. Backing up a little bit. Uh, one of her sons later remarked, she reminded me again and again of counsel pleading with judge and jury for the life of the prisoner. The fixed attention of the court, the mastery of facts, the absolute self-forgetfulness of the advocate, the ebb and flow of feeling, the hush during the vital passages, all were there. So she was a very theatrical, uh, very, very committed minister. Uh, as another unnamed man put it, if I am ever charged with a crime, don't bother to get any of the great lawyers to defend me. Get that woman. So she was, yeah, uh, very, very uh, convicted in her approach to ministry. Lily Green would be inspired greatly by Catherine's status within the Salvation Army and by her approach to ministry. Though Catherine cared for a household of six at the time, she would eventually raise eight children. She maintained a hectic preaching schedule throughout most of her life. While Catherine would never actually lead the Salvation Army, she did take a significant leadership role in the church that was unheard of in England in the late 19th century. Weighing in along with her husband and other men who had leadership roles beneath him, she added the administration of the army to her duties when her husband's preaching duties left him with no time to run the church's growing administrative duties, and she earned the matriarchal role, the matriarchal role of the army mother. Catherine would also write a book that I mentioned earlier called Aggressive Christianity, which, which uh, would define Christian warfare and influence Leela substantially, and also Jim. Through a series of analogies, Booth describes Christian warfare as one, aggressive having a passion to reach the lost with the message of the gospel. Now I picture street preachers in high school or college cheerleading outfits. B, aggressive, B, B, aggressive. B-E-A-G-G-R-E-S-I-V-E, -E -E. B, aggressive. Kick Satan's butt, go on, get him. Uh, <laughs> I probably didn't get the rhythm of that right. It's been a while since I heard that cheer. Uh, adaptive, number two, communicating the gospel in relevant ways without compromising the truth. Three, anointed, living as a credible witness for Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Here's a passage uh, that's kind of illuminating about the Salvation Army's message and about how they thought about converting people that would reverberate in the ACMTC. Let's throw some uh, military music behind it to give it the proper spirit. Oh, people say you must be very careful, very judicious. You must not thrust religion down people's throats. Then I say, you will never get it down. What? Am I to wait till an unconverted, godless man wants to be saved before I try to save him? He will never want to be saved till the death rattle is in his throat. What? Am I let? Am I to let my unconverted friends and acquaintances drift down quietly to damnation and never tell them about their souls until they say, if you please, I want you to preach to me? Is this anything like the spirit of early Christianity? No! Verily, we must make them look, tear the bandages off, open their eyes, make them bear it. And if they run away from you in one place, meet them in another and let them have no peace until they submit to God and get their souls saved. 
This is what Christianity ought to be doing in this land, and there are plenty of Christians to do it. Why, we might give the world such a time of it that they would get saved in very self-defense if we were only up and doing and determined that they should have no peace in their sins. Where is our zeal for the Lord? We talk of Old Testament saints, but I would were we all like David. Rivers of water ran down his eyes because men kept not the law of his God. But you say, we cannot all hold services. Perhaps not. Go as you like. Go as quietly and softly as the morning do. Have meetings like the friends if you like. Only do it. Don't let your relatives and friends and acquaintances die and their blood be found on your skirts. Don't be Satan's biscuit. Don't be some kind of wishy-washy Christian frick. Gosh dang it. What the heck? Get out there and scream at people until they call the police and lock their doors. Be relentless with your families until they ban you from future get-togethers. Antagonize coworkers until you're fired. Antagonize friends until you don't have any anymore. Sounds like Catherine. If she could have just, you know, uh, got past the cursing and the violent references, I think she would have really liked some kind of, like Christian form of Whipple. Were you ruffle a few feathers trying to get the good word out? Well, frick you then, sister Christian. I'll pray for Jesus to kick your sweater stretchers off at the second coming. Jesus didn't just turn water into wine, he turned weakness into flipping Whipple. Out now, Whipple, Christian edition. Same stimulants as regular Whipple, minus all the Satan. Oh, you didn't know? We put the devil in every 48-ounce count of regular Whipple, except to flip up and drink up, buttercup. God didn't crucify his only son to then have a weak bottom army full of nothing but timid flipping frick faces. Jesus loves everyone, but when your dumb bottom has been long burning, he will not have whipped. Only Jesus saves souls, and only Flippin' Whipple lets you reach those souls month after month with zero sleep. Flip you, flip your family, and drink Whipple! Now available in Christian Edition flavor, Strawberry Crusades and Chocolate Crucifixion. You can listen to the H.P. Lovecraft uh, episode if you're real confused about Whipple. Or you can just accept that it's a very important energy drink that isn't meant for whiny flippin' babies. Anyway. Salvation Army expanded the U.S. in 1880. After a few of Booth's soldiers moved to Philadelphia, it's now ubiquitous red kettle campaign for which bell ringers collect donations outside stores and shopping malls every holiday season. If you live in the U.S., I'm sure you've seen them. Uh, I believe in a lot of other Western uh, countries too. That didn't start until the 1890s and didn't begin as a well-planned fundraising campaign. Uh, instead, one Salvation Army member in San Francisco came up with the idea on the fly when he needed to raise funds for a Christmas banquet. Today, the money collected through the Salvation Army's annual bell-ringing fundraiser helps provide services, this is crazy, crazy, for more than 25 million people in the U.S. each year, according to their website. Uh, General Booth died in 1912 after leaving a firm foundation for the work that the Salvation Army continues to perform today in 131 countries. And I got to say, the Salvation Army has done a lot of good. Homeless shelters, uh, disaster relief, humanitarianism, uh, you know, so much more. We have an awesome uh, gym you know, workout complex with a fucking huge pool, water slide, all this crazy stuff. It's very, very nice. Like one of the nicest gyms I've ever been in. And that was provided by the Salvation Army. Uh, over the years, they've spent billions on helping those in need. The ACMTC will take some structure notes from them, but will completely miss all the good parts. Uh, okay. So now that we understand their founding, who they kind of modeled their structure after, let's get back to Debbie Ding Dong, Jimmy Buffalo's son, sometime around 1980. Uh, they run out of money in Miami. Despite being born again in Christ and servants to his heavenly vision, they still have not put together a financial plan for how to pay their bills and how to raise a family uh, down here on earth. They still haven't spent much time trying to hold down jobs. They trade, uh, you know, loincloths, meth, and hippie living in the woods with no real life plan for missionary work and still having no real life plan. 
The Green family now returns to Sacramento where they have family to help them get by for a bit. Uh, Lily soon gets a job working nights at a hospital. Uh, Jim does not get work. He rests his bad back. And why am I not surprised at all that Jimmy Buffalo's son can't hold down a job? I know that some people legitimately have bad backs and cannot work. I know that. I also know it's a, it's kind of like the disability claim of choice that people who uh, aren't really disabled like to file, right? Like uh, people who have backs that only act up at the prospect of actual work. And then their back is somehow magically fine when they're doing something they enjoy. I've definitely known that person. Now eight years old, uh, their daughter, Sarah, finally has a bit of a normal childhood. Won't last long. For the moment, she's no longer being dragged around on missions and she attends a local school and makes some friends. Uh, 1981. Some sources say 1979, probably 1981. Uh, Lilla and Jim found Free Love Ministries, a religious community based out of their new Sacramento home. This is the very beginning of what will become the ACMTC. They opened their doors after a psychotic episode. I mean, Revelation. They apparently had 1979. Their website describes the founding of Free Love Ministries like this. In 1979, James and Deborah Green entered the prayer closet and God was there. Ah, oh, it's so sweet. I wish I had a closet in my house. Speaking to them prophetically, he made it clear that he was raising up an army, his spirit army. True, there have been other armies claiming the Lord's name, but this was something new. It's always something new with the cult. They got the inside track. It was by the prophetic word of the Lord, the aggressive vision came to be. Believing what God had said, the generals took it to heart and began to give their lives so they could take, so they could live their lives to fulfill the vision. True to his word, after many years of seeking sacrifice, determination, and hard work, God has brought into an existence, into existence an army. And that's just the beginning. Over the years, God has expanded and embellished the vision, bringing others into the revelation as well. Until today, God's holy tribal nation shines like a beacon on a high mountain, lifting others up and calling people around the world to give their lives in his service. Yes, God is raising up his army, an army of fearless, obedient disciples, the army that sheds no blood. This is how the aggressive vision came to be. The word of the Lord shall never fail. Interesting that out of all the people on earth, out of everyone on earth, God would choose Debbie Ding Dong and Jimmy Buffalo's son, a 34-year-old whose back flares up at the prospect of gainful employment to be one of you know his, his top earthly generals, to be his top two earthly generals. Does that seem a little sus to you? Seems a little sus to me. Uh, their name, Free Love Ministry, seems to clearly be a nod to their 1960s youth, flower children, teaching peace and universal brotherhood. Now they're not so flowery. Uh, they build up a compound on a message of hellfire and God's impending wrath now. The dozen or so people who would soon live at the camp, as they initially called it, four communal houses on X and 22nd Streets in Sacramento that made up the ministry's base, they saw themselves as warriors doing daily battle with the world and its many, many demons. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, the Greens attracted followers through a program they hosted on local radio and uh, by passing out evangelical tracts at bus stops and college campuses, you know, restrooms. You know, like when you, I've seen that a million times, you go to the fucking urinal there's some weird-ass little pamphlet there written by some maniac about how damnation is near. Uh, Leela soon began to believe she was a prophet of the apocalypse. Oh, fuck yeah, here we go. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. B-E-A-G-G-R-E-S-S-I-V-E. Come live on the compound. Hear the message we have found. Make some angry Jesus sounds. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. Uh, Lila and Jim's radio message grew more vigorous in their condemnation of homosexuality, psychoanalysis, rock and roll, and other blatantly satanic forces. And then for being too hateful, uh, they get kicked off the air. <laughs> Therapy and new wave early 80s music. It's making everyone satanic. Damn you, Tears for Fears. Damn you, Culture Club. 
By convincing recruits to sign over all their earthly assets, only Satan wants you to own your own shit. Don't you know that? The Greens moved into an old single-family house off a noisy freeway in downtown Sacramento where the cult got going. You know, and then they bought those three adjacent homes. So they had their four little houses. Uh, the three adjacent homes were called uh, the barracks. They all, they all shared a backyard. You know, this is compound number one. About 50 followers would ultimately move into this camp. And it was soon redubbed Fort Freedom. Mm-hmm. Sarah lived with her parents in the main house, the Citadel. Welcome to the Citadel and Fort Freedom. Sure, I know it looks like four shitty houses right next to the freeway in a bad part of downtown Sacramento, but it is actually the Citadel. You are, you are, it is, what a great honor to live in the camp. Um, Sarah's life at Fort Freedom was pretty tumultuous in sixth grade. She was pulled from the local public school, homeschooled, but not really that well. She now studied the Bible and not a lot of anything else. When Sarah had problems and brought them to her mother, who was now leading this cult, Leela started to tell her basically whatever the problem was to, to fast and pray and deal with it. Nice. God, I should start doing that with my kids. That would make parenting so much fucking easier if I didn't have to actually think about how to help them with their problems. Like we had a problem with Kyler's class recently on vacation. He went to this class out of the district and we had to track down his whole family effort. His stepdad actually ended up uh, kind of saving the day through a contact he had there was a mistake. His counselor gave him the wrong information to sign up for this outer district class. Then his counselor goes on vacation, right? And, and now we can't email him because he's not checking his emails and we're calling the school. Nobody else seems to know what's fucking going on. You know, it's it a week of a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls to finally get this thing resolved for him. And what I should have done is just told him to pray about it. <laughs> get, get out of here. Stop bugging me. I'm trying to get some sun. Go fast for a while. You know, for everything. God, that make things easier. Dad, I don't feel good. I still have a fever. I've had diarrhea for three straight days. Well, maybe pray harder. Come on. Clearly, you're not fasting enough if you have poop to poop. Dad, can you please help me with this camp application? Can I? Yes, but I won't. You need to just fast. If you fast enough, if you stop eating for long enough, somehow you'll get into the camp. Mysterious ways. Uh, around this time, approximately 1984, Leela, as a dark horse of the apocalypse, now starts conducting unsettling ceremonies in the basement of the Citadel. Things are getting fun now. <laughs> there, one of God's favorite children prophesies, prophesizes uh, and performs exorcisms often. Like, apparently like a lot heavy on the exorcisms because her followers, they were rife with demons. They had a real demon situation happening there. Good thing she was there to save them. And this is my favorite part. She starts leading these strange, what the fuck is going on here rituals where participants will lay on the floor and violently birth, quote unquote, new souls into God's army. Yes. Women start to lay down <laughs> on the floor and pretend to have babies. And then these pretend babies are actually souls who will help win the war against Satan as part of God's army. God's army. I'm not sure what verse that's based on. I, I, I couldn't find it. I, I, I think I was consistently given the wrong Bible growing up. Right? When, I, when I get into these cults, I'm like, I don't remember that from my Bible. Uh, it maybe came, comes from like the Book of Ding Dong or Second Wackadoodles or something. Imagine watching that ritual. <laughs> How, if you can watch that shit and not pack up and leave the compound, I, I think you're probably sticking around to the very end. Also, sources don't say only women are doing this. I just assume that. But who knows? Maybe men had to lay down and push some spirit babies out of their poop hole loopholes. For comedic purposes, God, I hope so. Push, Bobby! <laughs> Just all fucking sweaty. <gasps> push! Push that soul out of your loophole! And then Bobby's like, Not so hard, Bobby! We can't build God's army out of gas! That's gas, not a spare baby! Come on! You're not trying hard enough. Uh, within a year of form... 
God, it's, I know it's so juvenile, but God, I just think about just people down there. No, that's not a baby. You're ruining it. it stinks down here now. Doesn't smell like God's army. Within a year of forming this compound, life or followers uh, grow significantly more structured. Meetings start being held daily. Members start wearing military uniforms. Uh, during the day, they'll leave the, you know, Citadel, leave their fucking nonsense compound and go work random jobs. Uh, for, for whatever reason, a lot of them work at this local frame and art shop. They infiltrate the secular world to make some, uh, you know, cold, soulless cash. Uh, the overwhelming majority of their income was then forced, you know, to or folded, excuse me, back into the ministry. Jim Green, his back to ouchie. Ow, ow, ah, my back for real work. Uh, he spends a lot of his time uh, drawing. <laughs> he fills his new monthly publication, Battle Cry, Aggressive Christianity with illustrations of swords, soldiers, knights in cool armor, grotesque demons, devils. Uh, you know, he lists of feared black arts, a, a barrage of scenes of violence and confrontation. So like, like, like shit that I would doodle in like fifth grade. I found some pics and Jimmy Buffalo's son is, uh, you know, not surprisingly not good at drawing. It, it probably it probably hurt his back too much to put any real effort into it. Uh, the Greens constantly pass along Leela's revelations to followers. <laughs> Even ones uh, so over the top, obviously stupid, they probably should have been kept a, you know, quiet on it. Like uh, in the July 1984 issue of Battle Cry, Leela Green tells followers how God spoke to her. I'm not making this up. Gave her a recipe for travel bars. <laughs> Listing out ingredients such as health food store powdered milk, uh, directions for wrapping the bars in aluminum foil so they don't get stale. It feels like she mistook hearing God speak to her here with reading an old issue of Better Homes and Gardens or Good Housekeeping. Members were now instructed to cut off contact with friends and family who weren't willing to also join the cult. I'm doing this for Jesus, a 13-year-old girl explained in a farewell letter to her grandma. How sad is that? I don't think I'll ever see you again. No, thank you, Nana Satan. You made your flipping bed. You chose watching Magnum P.I. and MacGyver, sleeping in your own bed, cooking casseroles, watering your tomatoes in the backyard oversleeping on the floor of God's salvation compound and feasting on the Lord's travel bars and pushing out gas, I mean, spirit babies. Somewhere around 1985, the now 38-year-old uh, Lilla marks her status as an oracle of the divine by calling herself Deborah, after the only female judge in the Bible. She also gave the group a new name, one that better telegraphed its growing militancy. Free Love Ministries is flipping over. There's a new sheriff, I mean, fake army in town, and his name is Poop Pickle McLoopole and the Provo Floats. Boom, shakalaka. JK, it's Aggressive Christianity Missions Training Course. God, I wish their name was Poop Pickle McLoopole and the Provo Floats, though. That's a cult I would at least go to the introductory meeting. Uh, Jim and Deborah called for the creation of a holy tribal nation, a theocracy where militant holiness is demanded of all. Members are to give their money to the group which most were already doing, but now give it all and avoid all forms of devil pop culture. There was also a particularly intense fixation on the sins of the body per one group document. We don't pamper the flesh for it is never satisfied. It is for a little while after you jerk off. You, you do, if you, if you don't know, you, you get a respite. I will say that. Uh, following Jesus' example, we die to our desires and crucify the carnal beast within. Nice try, wet pussy. You just got crucified. No, I will not slide my hard dick in and out of you. Building the climax. Thank you very much. Be gone, Lucifina. Jesus loves his children, but hates their wet pussies and hates their boners. Uh, two years later, and then in 1987, responsibilities of command officer manual. Get the fuck out of here. Responsibilities of command. Uh, the ministry states its new beliefs. Our ministry 
sometimes known as ACMTC, Holy Tribal Nation, Free Love Ministries, and Life Force Team, <laughs> is completely founded on the Bible and the doctrines therein. We are also biblicists. We believe in theocratic rule under his eye, may the Lord open, uh, which means we believe in the divine dictatorship of God Almighty. We subject everything to the Lord and he takes care of us. We are an intentional community of Christians. The ministry was founded in 1981 by General James and General Deborah Green. We believe in a military structure, which is partially based off the original pattern of the Salvation Army commenced by William and Catherine Booth in the mid-1800s. I like how they make themselves seem nicer and more legitimate uh, by connecting themselves to a well-known and famously humanitarian Christian organization. Uh, the 1987 description also states their spiritual beliefs. One, his grace is demonstrated that we might be free from captivity, but his freedom is to be used for and unto his ultimate intention. Your life must be dedicated to God and God alone. No motley crew, no poison, no warrant. Do not partake in a slice of hair metal cherry pie. It will lead to your damnation. Two, God always asks, I, I'm making up the, the butt metal, the, the butt rock stuff, obviously there. Uh, two, God always asks that which is impossible to the natural man in order that his people will be dependent upon divine spiritual resources. Okay. I read this as, listen to Debbie Ding Dong. She is God's most important spiritual resource. Jimmy Buffalo's son also has some cool drawings of monsters that, I don't know, will help you on your pilgrimage. Uh, number three. God designs all things to function properly under his control. He is not content to merely set us free, but longs to turn our capacity. That is, he longs to bring us back into his captivity. God wants us to lay on the ground and make spirit babies. That's kind of what I'm getting here. I know it's hard to understand, but that's what we interpret from this statement. Mysterious ways, all that. So lay on the floor and push, but not too hard. Push just enough to get a little like, oh, 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 oh there it goes. The baby, go on, fight the battle but not hard enough to be like, because ah, ah. that, doesn't, that doesn't smell good. Number four, man must either submit to God's purpose or become captive to some other law. God's plan will not allow us to live long in liberty apart from law. I interpret this as them saying, easy on the meth. It makes Jimmy Buffalo's son get a little too knife happy in the woods. Number five, God's pattern is not spurts of consecration and dedication, but a consistent walk leading into a continuous unfolding revelation of his plan and purpose. I interpret this as, you can't just give your whole paycheck sometimes. God demands more devotion than that. Jimmy Buffalo's son needs expensive art supply, pencils for his super cool drawings. Uh, mornings at Fort Freedom are now starting earlier than ever with a 5 a.m. service in the Citadel. Got to keep those recruits tired. Help, helps keep them confused, right? All the big cult leaders figure that shit out. Dwight York, Jim Jones, David Koresh. That's a cult 101 power move. After breakfast, Sarah and the group's now approximately seven other children receive a few hours of homeschooling. Make sure they can read and write, but not too much else. Don't want them to get too worldly. In the evening, there are more services, more prayers, more chores. Whenever Sarah pushes back against this rigid schedule, her dad Jim beats her with a belt or a switch, no sparing the rod. Sarah tries to do something small for herself, like at a hobby, uh, and she lands on collecting antiques. But this is forbidden by the group. Thinking the items are idolatrous, right? Meaning they start thinking that Sarah's worshiping her antiques more than God. Other members do this big public ceremony of chopping them into pieces in front of her. <laughs> One woman recalls, uh, uh, would later recall hearing Sarah's wails from the courtyard when this happens. What were you thinking going antiquing, Sarah? You'd be better off sucking dick in an opium den. No place has more sin than an antique shop. You ever watch Antique Roadshow? Well, don't if you care about your soul. It's practically an infomercial for the devil. Everyone knows that. 
Deborah started to demand a more enthusiastic worship of her followers, speaking tongues, right, already. God wants you to babble like an idiot. That's that's how he knows that you love him. Uh, Mara Schmeier, remember in her mid-30s at the time, remembers Deb chastising her for not screaming, vomiting, and writhing on the floor like other members did. That's her description. <laughs> Deb was, was mad at her for not screaming, vomiting, and writhing on the floor. B, aggressive. B, be aggressive. Writhe on the floor if you don't want to be Satan's whore. Uh, once when she was pregnant, uh, Mara's husband, completely buying into Deborah's bullshit, tells Mara that their baby is going to be born possessed with a demon if she can't writhe harder. Come on. Right? Uh, uh, I'm sure uh, I'm sure Deb went, you know, full drill sergeant on Mora regarding her, you know, lack of enthusiasm. Corporal Mara, do you want your baby to be filled with demons, you weak faith freaking maggot? How many of Satan's children do you hope to fill your infant vessel with harlot of Babylon? One thousand. One million. Let go of your doubt. Buy my message completely, Mora Moron. I am God's apocalyptic oracle. There will be snacks for the final showdown, and I will be baking them per God's instructions because he has given me the recipe for travel bars. You can eat my travel bars, wash my feet, or you can give birth to hellfire. Throw up and babble. Push a demon out of your Satan tunnel before it's too late. Uh, soon another uh, sin of Mora's was that she refused to beat her children. Well, not her children exactly, her baby. Uh, she was standing in one of the services in the Citadel one morning, and her baby made a little noise, uh, like a little gurgle, you know, like a infant baby does, not even crying. A cute little noise, but Deb, General Deb found it distracting, and she commanded Mara to go and beat her six-month-old infant. <laughs> That'll teach that disrespectful little fuck with her stupid little baby brain that cannot literally comprehend what disrespect means. Praise God. Uh, Mora refuses. And Deb is not happy. She calls this defined spiritual ad adultery. Mora also refuses to beat her two-year-old for not using the toilet when commanded. And I got to say, I'm starting to hate Mora, right? It's almost like she wants her kids to be infested with demons. For this continual disrespect, Mara becomes a target of Deborah's anger. Is now often beaten and abused by Deb. She's not going to beat her kids. She's going to get beaten herself. At a service one evening, Deborah ends up uh, banishing Mara to the shed in the backyard. And then she will have to live there for several months. Mora will claim she is forced to spend so much time uh, in the shed, often locked in the shed, that she ends up having a hard time standing fully upright when she's finally released from her shed timeout. And I got to say, sounds like a fair punishment. It's like God said in a verse that now escapes me, Mara, if thou art too evil to beat thy baby and thou almost baby, thou must be banished to the sin shed. So saith the Lord our God. Uh, Deborah also gave Mora a new name, Forsaken. Makes her perform constant demeaning tasks like carrying rocks around pointlessly, cleaning garbage cans uh, when she's not shed-bound. After she gets out of the shed, two other women will later receive the same punishment. Get to the shed, Becky! You banish the shed. Deborah names them barren and despised. We got forsaken, barren, and despised. That's that's the names they have to go by. Those fucking shed ladies. Uh, <laughs> after several months, Debbie Ding Dong banishes forsaken entirely from the compound. She tells Mara she has to go. Her non-baby beaten ways are dragging down the spiritual morale of the whole group. Deb tells her that God has no place for Mara in his army. He only wants baby beaters. They make the best soldiers. At the time, Mara is so brainwashed and tired, she actually felt thankful that her children were allowed to stay behind with her father. It seemed like a great kindness that only she was banished. But then once she got out, she got a little bit of rest. She talked to some people who weren't completely out of their fucking minds. She's like, wait a minute. Things were not good there. Uh, she begins to recognize that she'd experienced abuse, not being part of a godly community. 
1989, she sues the ACMTC over how she'd been punished and she wins a million dollar judgment and is reunited with her kids. The lawyers who represented Mara spoke with other community members. They got a good look at this strange little gang, not being cult members. They didn't like what they saw. They surmised that the Greens were intelligent, crafty motherfuckers who had gotten real good at controlling others. Lawyer Robert Blazer said, Lilla Green is the real power behind this group. She's one of those people you look in the eyes and you feel real strange, a Charles Manson type. Yep. Uh, I've watched some of Deb's videos and I agree. Jim and Deb lose their case partially by refusing to appear in court. They're too arrogant. How dare the court ask God's generals to defend themselves from baseless accusations from Forsaken? Oh, you're going to trust Forsaken over us? <laughs> okay. That shed bitch? All right. Uh, as part of the judgment of the uh, all the group's buildings are seized by the court. Deborah, of course, is furious. Uh, Deb, I mean God, then suddenly demands the compound's destruction. Time for some smiting. Sarah and other members sneak back to the compound on Deborah's orders. They climb over a chain link fence near an old pomegranate tree and they destroy their former compound with sledgehammers. They tear up floors. They sever beams. They punch through sheetrock like Christ would have done. <laughs> they turn the other cheek. They grabbed a sledgehammer and they started swinging. Uh, a little nod to this can be found today on their website. One of the most opposed scriptures that we believe in is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, verse 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous and the wrongdoers will not inherit or have any share in the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the impure and immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who participate in homosexuality, nor cheats, nor greedy graspers, and then parenthetical, like suing another Christian for $20 million, I may have added that. Nor drunkards, nor foul-mouthed revelers and slanderers, nor extortioners and robbers will inherit or uh, have any share in the kingdom of God. I'm surprised they didn't just write here, uh, nor extortioners and robbers. Looking at you, Mora, you freaking backstabbing biscuit. Uh, June of 1989, the fledging cult now flees Sacramento. Uh, they move briefly to a location near Cool, California, a little town of about 4,000, 40 miles northeast of Sacramento. I'd never heard of Cool before. Love that name. I wish it was uh, near some California towns called like sick, drippy. So awesome. Fuck yeah, bro. Should only take you about an hour to get to cool. Drive towards sick and take a ride on Main Street when you get to drippy and drive right on through so awesome. Take the cool cut off just outside of fuck yeah, bro. Uh, and cool, the group is accused of conducting militaristic training exercises. The group calls itself Freeland Mountain for a while. Uh, next, they settle in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Uh, the tumult of the lawsuit, subsequent loss of their compound, took a toll in the membership. Uh, by September, they're down to just 19 people. Hey, wonder how Debbie Ding Dong spun that. I'm going to guess she sold some story about how God was testing their faith. God wanted to make sure the ACMTC was a bunch of wishy-washy bandwagoners just sticking around during the super fun times when they're giving all their money to the compound, getting barely any sleep, constantly hearing about how Satan is everywhere, beating the, getting the shit kicked out of their infants, studying the Bible every day, pretending to give birth to spirit babies in the basement. I mean, of course you're going to stick around for all that fun, but what about when the going gets tough? Quality of life falls along with membership uh, numbers in late 1999, 1989, excuse me, 1990. Much of the group's food is now coming from dumpsters. It's tough for members to get steady jobs to help cover cult bills. Locals are mocking their Amish-style clothes that they're wearing while selling random groups or uh, goods around town, baked goods, you know, arts and crafts type stuff. Uh, in Klamath Falls, they're able to open up a restaurant, but residents are so suspicious of the group, they refuse to eat there cutting off the group's primary source of income shortly after they opened. I bet service was so fucking weird there. <laughs> I picture waiters and waitresses wearing camo and combat boots, aggressively taking your order, 
Welcome to God's Wrath Cafe, Heathen Maggot. You are not worthy of our divine nourishment, but we will serve you anyhow because we are pious and righteous. Today's special, like every day, is God's freaking travel bar. We also have a pretty mean spaghetti bolognese. Deb was given both recipes by the Lord himself, so if you don't like them, you are of the devil. Are we clear, heathen? We also have flipping Coke products, including Fanta and Barks root beer, which I feel pairs nicely with the spaghetti. Uh, a local Klamath resident named Sue Todd remembered the group years after they left, saying they called themselves the Aggressive Christian Ministry Oregon. The girls wore blue skirts, knee-high socks, and red or maroon sweaters. Some had babies. The community pretty much ignored them. They bought a couple houses, left them in shambles. They seem to have ditched their military garb for a bit. God must have told them to chill for a while on that, right? Build the numbers back up before getting too militant. Or maybe they couldn't afford them at the time, right? Because of stupid Mora ruining so much for them. Uh, things don't go well for them in Oregon. Sarah becomes depressed. Her weight drops to just 79 pounds. Uh, she wanted to attend midwifery school, but she knows that her mom will never let her leave. When she approaches the topic with her mom, her mom forbids her, of course, from applying. Uh, her parents also start to encourage her uh, pretty intensely to get married, something they'd be doing since she was 12. In her teenage years, Sarah had already rejected numerous proposals from various men in the cult who saw marriage as a way to gain status with Deb and Jimmy. In 1990, not long before Sarah's 18th birthday, she does finally give in to her parents' demands to get married. In an unofficial ceremony, she weds a 28-year-old cult member. She'd later say she didn't really like this guy, but she was worried her parents would match her with someone she liked even less, who was a lot older, if she kept resisting. Uh, there was also the hopeful promise of motherhood from a marriage. She thought that perhaps a baby might give her something to live for. Doesn't sound like life is real fun in this cult. Fun is for the devil. Uh, at some point in 1991, or between 1991 and 1993, the group relocates to some land near Barino, New Mexico, a small farming town of about 1,500 just north of the Mexican border, uh, right on the New Mexico and Texas border, a place with, based on some Yelp ratings, some pretty good barbecue and taco joints, and not a lot, of, not a lot else. I'm sure it's lovely. Actually, I'm not sure. I hope it's lovely. In 1993, when Sarah's 21, she gives birth in an old brick former schoolhouse that the ATM's ACMTC has now, is now calling their compound. Uh, the child, a boy, well, they probably don't call it a compound, call it their home. The child, a boy, arrives early, uh, is tiny. Sarah's precious her parents to let her visit a hospital where the medical staff insists that the baby boy is, uh, you know, a preemie who should stay in the hospital. Deb argues with an elderly pedi uh, pediatrician there who relents and allows Sarah to take the child back home on the condition that re she returned for a checkup in a week's time. Uh, she does not return. Her mom doesn't let her, but luckily the kid does survive. Back at the schoolhouse, Sarah now tries to find something to do for herself by transforming a desert plot into a garden. She plants vegetables, herbs, passion fruit, trumpet vine, throws herself into cult work, making incense, soaps, baked goods that the members sell while seeking new recruits in neighboring cities. Somehow the cult makes enough money doing this shit to fund some missions to a variety of countries like uh, India, Nigeria, Malawi, where Deb goes to look for new recruits. I bet she uh, focused on potential members with deep enough pockets to help bankroll all this bullshit. Uh, there was also another motivation for these trips. Deb was scouting out new places to flee to and build a new compound if things ever got, uh, you know, uh, troublesome legal-wise again. Uh, she'll want to get sued again. Almost cult member Bob Hedden was able to provide a little insight into what life in the cult was uh, like at this time. In 1995, Bob, who was 65 at that time, was living in El Paso, just under 30 miles from Barino, and he thought about joining the ACMTC, but quickly changed his mind. He was recovering emotionally from the recent death of his wife, looking for Christian fellowship and Bible study. What he found in Barino was something different. Instead of Bible study, he found uh, group members who wore black uniforms with berets, who saluted and addressed each other by military ranks. There wasn't a Bible in sight, he said. They had sort of a holy roller type 
they had they had sort of holy roller type prayer meetings in the mornings and in the evenings where everyone rolled around on the floor and talked in tongues. Sounds sounds fun. He noticed that the group's members were really isolated from the rest of the world. No televisions, no radios, uh, not even kids' toys for the kids. On the bottom floor of the converted schoolhouse was a huge kitchen where soldiers baked hundreds of loaves of bread every morning to go sell. The upper floor was full of copies of Wisdom's Cry, a tabloid newspaper currently being published and mostly written by group's leaders. First, they had Battle Cry. Now they have Wisdom's Cry. I really tried to find, I really tried to find a copy of one of these publications online. Uh, not sure they exist. The links on the website no longer work properly. I, I did find an excerpt of one of uh, Deb's sermons online, though. Let's, uh, let's see what Debbie Ding Dong was talking about out in the New Mexico desert. I tell you, I worked in a hospital and I've watched sinners die and I've seen the desolation that comes across their faces and I've seen them young and I've seen them old and I've seen them when they thought they had everything and I've seen them when they thought they were a king or a queen with mm -hmm. the drugs that they used and I've seen those drugs drag their liver out of them and I've seen them blowed up like stuck hogs and I've seen them die right there and no chance to get right with God. Mm. Yeah. And probably when they were living on top of the world and they had their pockets full of money mm -hmm. and they were dealing their drugs and Ugh. everybody thought they were a big man or a big woman, mm -hmm. they probably thought there was no tomorrow, but tomorrow came. And when the curtain came down on tomorrow, they cannot mm -hmm. raise that curtain up. And when they breathe that last breath of life, it is final what they've done in this life. Mm -hmm. And there is no turning back. And there is no life coming back into those dead corpses. Hey. Let me tell you another thing. I've wheeled corpses to the morgue. What? I've literally pushed those carts. Huh? And I've seen those bodies. And they are cold. And they are yeah. stiff. And mm -hmm. their time is over. Mm -hmm. That's how dead bodies work. And they can't get it back. Mm -hmm. it's also, done. yep, how dead bodies work. And many of them probably were fools who laughed about God and who mocked oh. God. Oh. And who made hey. fun of the things hey. of God and who talked about God as some old jolly old man upstairs or I'll get w right with God uh -huh. in my time or maybe when I'm older I'll serve God mm -hmm. or maybe they said religion is for old people or for old ladies or I don't want to go to church it's boring mm -hmm. I love this party life but mm -hmm. let me tell you something oh, when yeah. they're on that cold cart and they're being wheeled to the morgue there's no party life because that yeah, thing morphine. is D-E-A-D and their soul has gone to hell yeah ay 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 Gosh dang! Be afraid, meat sacks. Be very afraid. Uh, felt like she was speaking directly to me. Call me a fool for my mockery there. I wish I could have sat through one of Deb's sermons, kind of like that fantasy, as you know, uh, relaying earlier. I would have loved to interrupt her and then watch her try to beat me like a baby. Uh, excuse, excuse me, Deb. Sorry to interrupt. I, I, I was told there would be snacks. I heard. I heard there was travel bars. Uh, when are we having the snacks? And then after she gets back into it, after I shut up for a while, interrupt her again about thirty seconds later. Uh, hey, hey, Deb. Are you sure you were paying close attention to God when he gave you the travel bar recipe? Because at the risk of sounding ungrateful, it feels like they could use more sugar. Like maybe a bit more butter, salted butter perhaps. I'm sure God knows that everything's better with a bit more butter and sugar. And then after being screamed at for a while and promising to let her continue un 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 uninterrupted, you know, let her go for about 50 more seconds. Before, uh, sorry, Deb, I, ah, I hate to mess up your flow yet again, but I think, I think I might have a spirit baby in my bottom. It's hard to tell. I want to let it out, but I'm afraid it might be gas. I don't want to toot. I don't, heaven forbid, I don't want to shart in the middle of your sermon. So should I roll the dice and see what loophole is out of my poop hole or should I go to the bathroom? Because I also don't want to flush a possible soldier and God's army in the toilet. Follow-up question. Deb, can a turd be one of God's soldiers in disguise? What? God just told you to give me my dishonorable discharge? Okay. All right, fine, fine. I'll, I'll be honest. I haven't been real impressed with your army. 
Uh, Bob Hedden was not impressed with their army either. He estimated only 10 to 12 people. They were the Barino compound, most of them adults, a few in their teens. And by the way, she is full military garb as she's given that sermon. Uh, the group would soon leave Barino and settle in Fence Lake, New Mexico, where they would have thousands of members. They would grow strong enough to make the U.S. military fear them. U.S. Secretary of Defense at the time, uh, future VP Dick Cheney, was quoted as saying, Iraq concerns me. North Korea bothers me. Russia and China scare me. But only the aggressive Christian military training corps under General Deborah Green's intense leadership terrify me and keep me up at night. Even the full might of the U.S. military might not be enough to defeat God's army, especially when they can toot out as many new soldiers as they need to. Uh, JK, of course. They would not grow huge in fence like They would stay small and pathetic and weird. In July of 1997, Deborah and Jim purchased 640 acres that have been parts of the old Tingle Ranch of Fence Lake, New Mexico. They got a good deal in the land because almost no one wants to live anywhere near Fence Lake. Apologies to all my Fence Lake listeners, but this place is an absolute and total fucking shithole. Thanks to Google Street and satellite views uh, for letting me look around long enough to be absolutely 1,000% certain I will never waste a single minute of my life traveling to this land of a few dirty, dilapidated buildings surrounded by dusty parking lots, one paved road, the highway, and miles and miles of flat, barren desert. It is not a town. It is a post office surrounded by dusty ranches, literally not one restaurant. As of at least a few years ago, they still didn't even have cell phone service. It, it honestly looks like a place where you'd go film a dystopian horror movie. It looks like, a, a, like where a clan of inbred cannibal hillbillies would be holed up in an abandoned shack 50 years after some kind of atomic apocalypse wipes the world out. Looking for drifters to fuck and eat, not necessarily in that order. But you know, if you live there and you like it and you listen to this podcast, I am fucking surprised. Sell your land and move. Gosh dang, you'll be happier homeless on a beach around San Diego than you will be as a land baron in this dusty wasteland. As of the 2010 census, Fence Lake, New Mexico, had a population, I said earlier, of 42. According to local residents, the name was derived from the original settlers having to fence off the only good pond in the area to keep animals from shitting in it. That's perfect. The ACMTC settled about 10 miles east of this uh, census-designated place and called their compound Shimrana Ecclesia, or Miracle River. Let's go with Miracle River. That's easier to say. The Greens used the Fence Lake Post Office to mail out their weird publications and, uh, you know, Jimmy's uh, sweet drawings. And what brought them to Fence Lake? Why leave when they had it so good in Barino? Well, they kind of stole a baby. And they had to flee. Uh, or they felt they should flee. In 1997, after a mission trip through East Africa, Debbie Ding Dong returned home with big news. She claimed to have met a pregnant young woman who had agreed to give the group her baby. Why would the group want her baby or any baby? That is never made clear. I guess they thought it'd be a good soldier or something. The ACMTC would accept the child through what Deborah called a closed adoption. The handoff would involve no government agencies or official oversight. Not suspicious at all. The young mother had apparently agreed to the plan because Deb had promised to give the child a better life in America. And because the mom worried a newborn might derail her dreams for her future. At least that's what Deb said. I don't believe Deb. Deb assigned her daughter, Sarah, to go get this baby. She would take it to the local American consulate, claim it as her own baby. Sarah, who had recently had a second son, lived uh, lived on the compound and was still lactating, uh, you know, could pull this off. To explain how Sarah, a white woman, had given birth to a black baby, you know, Sarah was just to tell the, the officials that the father was a local man uh, who she couldn't find now and, you know, she needed to return to America. Obviously, this seems less and less like adopting and more and more like kidnapping. Uh, Sarah thought she was doing the right thing. She actually thought the mom wanted to give up the baby. Also knew that she had no real choice and that her sons would be punished if she didn't go. Shortly before Thanksgiving in 1997, Sarah gets on a plane to retrieve the newborn. She straps uh, $10,000 in cash to her legs. Deborah's scheme goes exactly as planned. 
Upon accepting the baby, Deborah or Sarah gives the mom $1,000, money the young woman seemed to have not expected. She then secured a consular report of birth abroad, declaring herself as the mother. Together with the baby, she boards the, the plane and heads home. She returns back to Barina, where Sarah starts raising the little girl as her own. Several months later, however, the group hears from the girl's aunt, who has tracked them down, I'm sure through great effort. The aunt is in the U.S. and wants to visit, see what the fuck's going on with this baby. Deborah panics, afraid the woman's coming to take her child, which probably was kidnapped, and uh, decides to pack up and move again. ACMTC members wander in a caravan for several weeks now. They make their way all the way up into Utah and Colorado. Uh, can't find a proper place for a compound, so they head back down not too far from Reno in the you know New Mexican desert. Sarah thought about leaving. She'd thought about it for years, uh, but the same roadblocks still existed. What about her children? She loved being a mom, desperately wanted to get her kids access to education and healthcare, but at the same time, she knew life outside the cult would be just as insecure. She only had a couple days worth of money squirreled away, didn't have a job or a resume to go get a job if she got out. She wanted it to even be possible on a physical level, right? How would she leave with three small children with so many people trying to stop her from leaving? Soon she would meet a possible way out. In the summer of 1999, a young man briefly becomes involved with the ACMTC. He's a wanderer from either Australia or New Zealand. Sarah couldn't remember which. They started taking long walks together. Before long, Sarah begins having feelings for him, romantic feelings, uh, soon reveals to him that she wants to run away. As fall approaches, a plan begins to take shape. The young man is heading to Canada to renew his visa, she tells Sarah, and Sarah wants to go with him. This means leaving without her kids, which breaks her heart, but she makes up her mind that she will return for them once she's established herself outside the compound. The day before she leaves, Sarah packs a backpack with photos of her kids, her parents, her brother, along with some granola bars, a water bottle, a stack of evangelical tracts. She plans to use the flyers as an alibi if she gets caught trying to leave, saying she's not running away. She's just go going to do some recruiting. That night, she reads her kids' stories, squeezes them tight. Oh, man, so fucking sad. Writes them each a letter telling them she loves them and will return soon. Then she gets into bed and waits. Around midnight... Uh, on a September night in 1999, Sarah Green sneaks out of bed, creeps out of the house. A full moon illuminates her path to a small shack where she'd hidden her backpack in preparation for this escape. She's 26. She runs past some flower beds, glances back at the shacks and scattered trailers of the compound. Nervous sweat runs down her back as she listens for the yelp of dogs which prowl the property. She crouches by a wood shack, waits for the young man to join her. Uh, he uh, soon appears. Then two now quietly walk to a stone wall at the edge of the compound throw their bags over, climb over to the other side, and then they run, run, run. Eventually, they make it to the road, hitchhike to Los Angeles, where they take a bus north to Seattle, camp out under a bridge for a while, and then the young man continues on to Canada without Sarah. Despite her feelings for him, she's worried about trying to leave the country. Uh, she moves into a church shelter and gets a job at a coffee shop. Once she'd saved up a little money, she rents a room from a pair of nudists, uh, sleeps on their floor in a sleeping bag. Wish I knew more about her time here. What a strange life transition to go from people preaching every day about how sinful sexuality is to moving in with some dude who probably starts his day making pancakes with his balls out. Uh, though she works constantly, misses her kids, Sarah is also enjoying her newfound freedom. She now eats whatever she wants. She wears whatever she wants. She goes to art galleries, to the park, to the library. She goes to the grocery store. You know, she buys processed foods like ramen noodles. Almonds, Hershey bars, powdered mini donuts. Fuck yeah, mini donuts. Those might be one of God's miracles. Uh, she goes and sees a play called Metamorphosis. She had literally never done these things before. Uh, not since she was a small child, as far as like the grocery store and things, but she had never had, but even then she wouldn't have had the freedom to buy what she wanted. She felt she feels overwhelmed by guilt. 
on a daily basis. She worries that she is condemning herself to hell by fleeing. Um, you know, everyday frustrations make her wonder if God is judging her. She worries about her kids. She struggles with feeling like she's abandoned them. Then nine months after her escape, Sarah gets a call from Deborah. She's shocked her mom has tracked her down, perhaps through cards she had sent to her kids. After begging Sarah to return, Deborah puts Sarah's husband on the line, who also begs uh, their daughter to come back. Sarah refuses, but now stays in contact with the cult. Deb plays some uh, things somewhat cool back in Fence Lake, but she has gone ballistic over Sarah leaving. She went cuckoo, former ACMTC member Julie Godino would say. I watched that lady go crazy in front of my face. And that's saying something. This is coming from someone who did not think Deb was cuckoo or, or crazy back when she was telling her that God spoke to her, that the end was coming soon, uh, was wearing a general's outfit, demanding that crying infants be beaten, presiding over crazy sessions of speaking in tongues or kicking out spirit babies. All that shit was totally sane, but now she's gone cuckoo. Deborah begins going on ferocious fasts. And I will say she is very thin in many of her videos, not eating for days or weeks at a time, demanding the same of her army and particularly fiery sermons. She rages about Sarah's wanton ways, right? She'd lost her shit. What little shit she had left by this point. She began subjecting members to more appalling punishments than ever, especially the little girl Sarah had brought to America, according to claims later made in court, claims that would lead to guilty verdicts. In the years following Sarah's departure, Deborah tortures this poor girl physically, emotionally, and also sexually. Uh, she forces her to perform hard labor, beats her with a whip that a detective will compare to a cat nine tails, deprives her of sufficient nutrition to the point she develops rickets out in the New Mexican heat. Her softening bones grow visibly misshapen. According to another former member, she justified some of this physical abuse by explaining to followers that God might want her to return the girl to her home country someday. And in that case, she needs to be strong and tough. Uh, okay. She needs rickety bones to brave the trials and tribulations of her homeland. Uh, meanwhile, back in Seattle by June of 2000, Jimmy Buffalo's son and Debbie Ding Dong's daughter, Sarah, is still trying to eke out a life for herself while also communicating with the cult, hoping to figure out how to reunite with her children without having to rejoin her parents' cult. cult. Praise God, we are all glad to have had contact with you after so many months, Deb wrote to Sarah in a June 2000 email. You are coming back. You are going to be delivered of the demons that have held you in captivity. I wonder if she's referring to those mini donuts when he talks about demons there. I mean, if you eat enough of them, it will fill. It will feel like your stomach's full of demons. Uh, Sarah wrote back to her mother about her little sinful binge in Seattle. I still love you all very much, no matter what a mess I've made of my life, she wrote in one letter. At the end of an email to Deb, she signed off as your worthless daughter, who is finally starting to see herself. Not sure if this self-loathing is genuine here or if she just, you know, saying to her mom what her mom wants to hear. Uh... It may have been some self-loathing. She did feel conflicted, she would say later. Though Sarah was glad to have left the ACMTC, she still carried right, her childhood's worth of teachings inside of her. You know, uh, sometimes Deb would mail religious tracts to distribute uh, uh, you know, to Sarah. Sometimes Sarah would actually distribute them, thinking maybe she could help somebody. Her first year on the outside would be marked by mixed belief and unbelief. She emailed an old friend from the group in December 2000. Many days, I just wake up hating my whole existence of everything that I've ever done. I turned 28 yesterday. I felt a lot older than that. She does start taking a few nursing classes. Um, she meets a man at a coffee shop she works at, starts dating him, soon gets, gets pregnant. 10 months after this baby is born, she decides to fulfill the promise she had made to return to New Mexico for her kids. Now seven, five, and the little girl is four. Uh, she writes letters home, falsely suggesting she may rejoin the group. She knows that without such assurances, her parents were would never allow her back on the compound. The letters work. She is invited back in the spring of 2002 with her new baby in tow. She gets back to Fence Lake. 
The land where dreams go to die, be buried in the dust, unless that dream is to be a cattle rancher who hates the color green, loves the desert, hates eating out, going to the movies, high-speed internet, coffee shop, civilization, seeing other people who don't work on the ranch, then it's a paradise. Two and a half years have passed since Sarah had last seen her kids. Her oldest son would not come near her when she returns. The younger boy is happy to see her and her daughter runs to her, clings to her and will not let go. I want to take you home so bad, she whispers in her daughter's ear. When Sarah broaches the possibility of taking the children off the compound for a little bit, she is quickly driven back to a bus stop. Believing now she'll never see her kids again, she breaks down and starts sobbing. Uh, she later will learn that the raincoats and books she had brought them as gifts were burned in the trash. What a fun group of people. Uh, in 2003, Sarah has another baby with her boyfriend in Seattle. She then moves to New York and her relationship with the children's father ends soon thereafter. She works as an in, uh, first at an engineering firm, then at a cafe, also as a movie extra while helping friends birth as a midwife. Meanwhile, life continues to be crazy as ever back at Fence Lake. On September 21st, 2006, Mara Schmeier, that lady, the old, the old shed lady, goes on Dr. Phil to talk about her experiences in the ACT, uh, oh, Jesus Christ, the A-C-M-T-C. The whole title does not roll off the tongue and neither does their acronym. Too much. Too much, you guys. Come on. Uh, she goes on with her daughter, Rebecca. On the show, Rebecca describes her childhood in the cult. I became a member of the aggressive, aggressive Christianity Mission Training Corps when I was 12 years old. Why couldn't they just call themselves the ACM, Aggressive Christian, Christianity Mission or something? Uh, my parents were friends with Jim and Deb Green. They appointed themselves to be generals. They assigned ranks basically on how dedicated people were. Rebecca says that she, when she was 17, the Greens ordered her to get married. Soon afterwards, she gave birth to a son. She says, the Greens tried to dictate her child's discipline. I whipped my son because I was instructed to, she said. I was afraid of Deborah Green. I did it because I was told to and I knew it wasn't right. Another former member, Paula, would speak on the same episode about the trauma of watching her daughter, Stacy be, you know, indoctrinated into the ACMTC. Uh, Paula would say, after college, Stacy got a job in Missouri. Brian, her now husband, was working there. He started talking with her about religion, things like that. Stacy told me she had gone to one of their prayer meetings. There was a prophet there, she said. Big red flag, by the way. <laughs> if anybody you know in life was like, hey, I went to this uh, meeting and they had a prophet. Yeah, I want to pull him aside and try to pitch them not to fucking, you know, go back. Uh, she said, Mom, the prophet told me that I'm going to marry Brian and you're going to have a son within a year. Less than seven months after Stacey and Brian met, I got a phone call and she said, Mom, by the way, we're getting married next Saturday. You can come if you want to. Hey. It was in a little country church. It was a frightening experience. It was more like a funeral. The wedding service was like hellfire and damnation, she said. Shortly after the wedding, Paula learned that her daughter had joined the ACMTC in New Mexico. She received a disturbing letter from Stacy that said, do not try to contact me. Please leave me alone. Let me go and live my own life the way I want to. Cult, 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 fuck your family. They will only drag you down into hell. We're your family now. Paula fell to the floor and sobbed. How was she supposed to get her daughter back? Uh, situations like this make me think randomly of mass shootings. Stay with me. Why can't a mass shooting ever be productive? Hear me out. You hear about yet another mass shooting, right? Your heart aches. But then what if you heard that the mass shooter was the parent of a cult member and had gone and lit up the cult hierarchy, putting a bunch of angry adult lunatics who don't seem real happy to be alive in the first place down in the desert in order to retrieve their child and save those not yet totally brainwashed. Probably not a great idea. I know, I know, but a real fucking fun fantasy for me to entertain. Oh, hell Nimrod. In 1997, Paula's daughter, Stacy had been there about a year, year and a half all contact had been cut off. All the letters, you know, she sent to her daughter just came back. No phone calls were allowed. 
not willing to just let go of her grown daughter. Strong mama bear Paula calls the sheriff's department in New Mexico. The sheriff tells her he'll take Paula down there and that he had, uh, and he advises her against going down there by herself. So hail whoever the sheriff was. I bet he was curious as hell about who these zealot weirdos were. Uh, the two go down to the compound, knock on one of the doors, ask for Stacy. When Stacy comes to the door, Paula is shocked to see her uh, glassy and expressionless eyes. She, uh, your daughter tells her mother that she is no longer Paula. She is now Gracious River. Awesome. Stacy is allowed to stay at the compound for a few nights. Last day of the visit, Stacy says, Mom, you can come back. Just let us know and please bring Wendy. Wendy is Stacy's sister, Paula's other daughter. Paula, of course, will never do that. Uh, she also, as far as we know, you know, will never see her daughter again. Soon after her visit, Paula receives an ominous phone call from Stacy, who says, this is Gracious River. I'm calling to inform you to never contact me again. You are no longer my mother. This is my family now. And then she hung up the phone. Paula tried to go back twice to see her, but was not allowed inside. How maddening. Dr. Phil arranged for Paula to travel to the group's compound with one of the nation's top private investigators, former FBI agent Harold Copas. Harold and his crew not welcomed with open arms into the compound, as you might imagine. When they go down there, a bearded man warily approaches them at the outskirts of the compound. Harold reaches out to shake the man's hand. The man does not offer his, as Christ intends, did not shake hands. Uh, what do you need? The man asks. Harold tries to uh, placate the stranger. I'm a private investigator. I'm working with the Dr. Phil show. This lady's daughter joined y'all's group. Even, even as nice, calls him a group, not a cult. There's nobody here, the man replies. What a weird reply. Nope, she's not here because nobody's here. Not even me. I'm a hologram. You're seeing some Obi-Wan Kenobi stuff right now. Paula shows the man a picture of her daughter. This is my daughter. This is Stacy. This is Gracious River. I, can't, I came from a long way. Please let me see my daughter. She's not here, the good Christian man maintains. Uh, help us out and just tell us where she is, says Harold. She doesn't live here, the man keeps insisting. God, this guy seems like a real dick. Uh, Harold asks several more times. Each time the bearded man answers the negative. And then he asks the crew to leave. When the Dr. Phil crew stands its ground, the bearded man becomes aggressive, pushing cameras away. I'm just telling you to get back in the car and go, he yells. At this point, a second man briskly emerges from the compound. Who are these people? Dr. Phil, is that it? What? What's going on? I thought nobody was there. Is this another hologram? Yes, I know who they are, he says. To me, I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. If they don't get off the property, we're going to physically remove them. And you guys are going off with them, he tells Harold. Uh, and he's talking about the, the film crew. See, right here is where my uh, my cold execution fantasy begins, right? These are the first two motherfuckers to get blasted. Nine millimeter, hollow point bullets, silencer, two quick headshots. Yeah, I know body shots are more practical, but it's my fantasy and I'm the best shooter on earth in this fantasy. I don't mean any trouble. I just want to see my daughter, Paula says. The men don't budge. If your daughter's not here, what are we supposed to do for you? Second man says, she's not here. That's as far as this is going to go. Pa, pa, pa. Right? Fucking hard for this guy to say that in my inner movie because he's fucking dead. He's dead and gone at this point. I've already moved on towards the main entrance of the compound and I have plenty of bullets. Uh, with no ability to legally force their way past them, Paula and the crew return to their hotel. Not in Fence Lake because there is no fucking hotel uh, anywhere near Fence Lake. Uh, later, Paula is going to be interviewed again on the Dr. Phil show about the cult's behavior. Uh, Dr. Phil asks, were you shocked at how aggressive they were when they were talking to you? No, she replies. I've seen them almost that bad before. Dr. Phil tries to make sense of the group's logic. Doesn't it seem odd that somebody who is supposedly a God-based group is out there threatening you, putting their finger in your face, he asks? Paula agrees. It's directly opposite of what they profess. Uh, do you believe she was there that day, he asks. I know she was. I have no doubt in my mind she was there, Paula insists. I felt her presence there. 
At the end of the interview, Dr. Phil assures Paula that even though she was unsuccessful in seeing her daughter at the compound, he won't give up. I left a message for Deborah Green. I would like the opportunity to sit down with you and Stacey and her two, her two, yeah, and her two children away from everybody else. And let's just talk about it, he tells her. You're going to continue looking, Harold. We'll stay on this. Of course, Deborah Green will not take him up on this. She's not going to be confronted outside of her little, you know, fiefdom where she knows that her shit makes no fucking sense, uh, which, which, is, which is crazy. Like, I love that she was given the opportunity to go on Dr. Phil. And if she really was a believer in spreading the good word, what a great way to get your message out to millions. But she doesn't do that because he's a fucking coward. She's a lunatic. Uh, like many of the other people in the story, Dr. Phil makes clear that rescuing Stacy from the compound is much more complicated than it may appear. Everybody is saying, why don't you just get the law and go down there and do an inventory? These are complex questions, but we're drilling down on them. He's down on them, he says. And he is right. It is so complicated. Even if Paula did forcibly remove her grown daughter somehow, she could just return. She probably would. I'll tell you what uh, would take care of this. Uh, her old cult being gunned down in the desert, Liam Neeson taken style. A man with a special set of skills that mostly revolves around gunning down cult leaders and cult upper management. That would be, whether a moral decision or not, uh, you know, something that would prevent Paula's daughter from continuing to be trapped in this cult. Uh, 2006, back at the compound in New Mexico, Sarah's daughter breaks her femur in what Jim and Deb say is a swing set accident. The injury is bad enough. It finally prompts them to take the girl to a nearby hospital. Crazy that General Debbie Ding Dong was not spiritually strong enough to pray the bone back together. Fucking weak, Deb. Immediately suspicious about the possibility of abuse, the New Mexico Children, Youth, and Families Department gets involved, takes the girl into, into custody, and puts the girl into foster care. Jim and Deb, uh, through their continued correspondence with Sarah, inform her that they have now lost custody of the girl and provide no other details. Sarah reaches out to New Mexican authorities in an effort to find her daughter, but the efforts go no, nowhere. As for her boys, Sarah doesn't know what to do about them. She worries if she tries to involve the police, her other kids will be taken into foster care or her mom will take everyone to go on the run, possibly to another country like she's been planning, you know, uh, talking about for years. Sarah sends her son emails on their birthdays, does not receive a reply. For her part, Deb writes Sarah to claim her older boy had manifested some of the spirits that were trying to take control of your life. But he is very profound for his age and he readily admits when he has been tricked or duped by the devil. Uh, okay. Uh, Deb tells Sarah's children that Sarah was no longer living a, a living soul, that she was a dead person on her way to hell. Eesh. You know, Deb and I don't always agree, but that does feel kind of fair. Uh, Deb's letters to her daughter, Sarah, start getting angry around now. Stop behaving as a spoiled child before God, all caps. She writes in a 2012 email, realize you are a sinner and repent before you spend eternity in hell. And again, not Deb's biggest fan, but this also feels pretty fair. I mean, I, I did think Sarah was kind of acting like a spoiled child before God earlier, but I didn't want to say anything. Uh, though Sarah still wonders and worries about the kids she's left behind, she is finding some happiness in New York. Raising the kids she had outside the group, she gets to be the kind of mom she wanted to be. She sends her kids to school. She treats them well. She doesn't beat the fuck out of them all the time. She doesn't lecture them day in and day out about God's wrath. And in 2012, Mara Schmeier, that member who'd sued Deb and Jim back in the 90s, now goes on the National Geographic television show called I Escaped a Cult to tell her story again. I fucking love Mara. She does not give up on trying to expose these clowns. Uh, she actually has a YouTube channel where she still posts about crazy shit the cult did. Meanwhile, life continues as it has been for years uh, inside the cult compound in Fence Lake. Very little written about their day-to-day -day activities at this time. They just keep surviving. January 1st, 2017, five years later, God apparently tells Debbie Ding Dong that God put Donald Trump into the Oval Office to defeat Satan. QAnon babble, here we come. On April 7th, 2017, uh, they published on their website. On January 1st, 2017, God's spirit declared to us that it was time for holy war against the nations of the world, 
The Spirit also told us that God put Donald Trump into the office of president of the U.S. He said that Trump was his choice. That is all he said. Whereas where Obama became president in 2008, the Spirit gave a long prophetic word about Obama being a weapon of mass destruction. Four and a half years later, still no holy war, by the way. Huh. <laughs> and by the way, you, you could replace Trump with Biden in this sermon for me, and I would think it was just as stupid. Just anybody claiming that God put so-and-so in charge. Uh, what, God will what God will use Trump for is to be, is yet to be seen. They write, uh, we, do, we do know that the Spirit told us that God used him to cast down Jezebel, Hillary, Hillary Clinton, as he used Jehu in the book of Kings. See, first and second Kings. What he will use Trump for after this, he did not say. Weird. What is God doing with Trump? Still waiting. And he's no longer president. And Hillary is alive and well. Ah, so is Obama. It almost feels like the three of them have played no role whatsoever in any type of spiritual plan. Mysterious ways. Ah, so much magic and mystery. The ACMTC continues in 2017 with their infinite wisdom posted on their site. It is not a new thing for God to use evil men, nations to punish other evil men, nations. Our stand on the Trump issue is that God chose him to do what needs to be done for good or for evil. <laughs> what a weird fucking take. Look, everyone, all I know is that God wants to do something with Trump. Maybe use him to defeat Satan. Or maybe he tag teams with Satan to bring more misery and pain into the world. I don't know. It's hard to say. Maybe use him to do what nearly every president in recent history has done and complain that they're not able to follow through on a variety of campaign promises because of political opposition and corruption in Washington. And that's why the rich keep getting richer and the middle class keeps shrinking. Again, not to keep beating this word to death. Yeah, it's mysterious. Uh, the ACMTC post continues. America has committed a sea of sins and crimes. Blood of the innocent and guilty runs deep. Unless this nation repents, I mean really repents, God is going to bring holy war upon her like never before. That is not a mere threat. That is a solemn promise. Uh-huh. So many sins you guys like the fucking most ever. I feel like Pornhub consumption may be responsible for about 50% of them. Damn you, Lucifina. Every time I jerk off the images you tell me to check out, which seem to pretty much consistently revolve around pinup style lingerie and light BDSM gear and curvy ladies for the last de two decades, you bring a holy war a little bit closer. Be gone. I have, a, I have a devil boner right now. Just thinking about these images. They continue. And America is not the only nation that is guilty. I said from the get-go of my preachings and writings, God has declared World War III. Whew, hot dang. So don't be surprised at what you hear and see. This is a terrible war being waged right now for the soul of America. There are many players and many nations involved. None of us know how things will go, but we can count on the fact that God wants many nations to repent, including the backslid church, especially the church. Oh, thank God. At least they don't go to church where most of the evil is, according to Deb. Thank God it is spiritually safer to beat that Sunday morning boner back at home. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe that is spiritual warfare. Maybe, hear me out. Maybe my dick gets possessed by the devil from time to time. Not as often as it did when I was in my 20s, but still pretty regularly. And then my right hand of the righteous, with God's help, of course, beats the devil out. I feel like I'm having a spiritual breakthrough right now. Maybe I'm not really jerking off. Maybe Jesus is, stay with me, kind of giving me a holy handy, not in a gay way, just in a holy, God devil, God get kind of way. Amen. The ACMTC continues. We're not to put our trust in President D. Trump or any other man, woman, or system. 
Don't be drug into a phony patriotism, for it has been this very thing that has grieved the Holy Spirit, idolatry. God hates idolatry as well as adultery and all forms of sexual and political perversions. Interesting. Don't worship Hillary or Trump. Okay, Debbie Ding Dong, I'm fucking listening. I'm trying to figure out where this is going. We must continue to sound the battle cry against all forms of crime and sin that covers this land. Continue to lift up Jesus Christ the Lord, not any man, woman, or system. It is God's prerogative whom he chooses to use or abuse. <laughs> That's a weird wording. You know, God abuses some people. The same, the same thing for all of us to do is to keep repenting and keep trying to obey the Lord. Don't look for a rapture, my dear fellow believers, but look to endure and persevere. Yeah, endure and persevere in the New Mexican desert where life fucking sucks. Keep baking that bread. We're doing it right. Anyone else blown away by the irony of Debbie using the word saint? Uh, further 2017 and 2018 writings from the website reveal the ACMTC got pretty deep into things like Pizzagate and QAnon, you know, deep state shit. Not surprised at all by that. I'm surprised these fuckers had internet access. Uh, Jim Green wrote a series of articles called Pedophilia Explained, Pedophile Predators Exposed. Pretty ironic, considering what's about to be revealed uh, about the cult soon. Excuse me, Jim, Jimmy Buffalo's son, former Mr. Meth, the artist who formerly threw a lot of knives around in the woods, hopped up on Satan's soundtrack, aka The Who and Led Zeppelin, wrote, The Necrophilius Left. Actually, he misspelled it horribly. I think it's, he wrote like Necrophilus, but I think he meant Necrophilus. Are obsessed with murdering the truth. Queen Jezebel of the Old Testament had the true prophets of God murdered. Goes without saying that we now know who their father was and is Satan. Holy shit. Left his fucking corpses now. You know what? I'm okay with uh, with Biden fucking a corpse here and there, actually. I mean, how old is he? What, 105? 116? It feels like with him, necrophilia is, is like, it's less about having sex with a dead body and more about being attracted to uh, others your own age. Come on! Low-hanging fruit right there. Hey-oh. Uh, the ACMTC then writes, practitioners are burning Trump's photo while chanting, so might it be, or Trump's famed catchphrase, you're fired, over and over, visualizing President Trump being blown apart into dust or ash. What? Is, was anyone doing that? Uh, these death filth eaters wholeheartedly believe that President Trump, his GOP staff, and the whole Christian camp are garbage. And poor Madonna, it was reported that she too placed a curse on Trump with a broken heart, devastated. What the fuck are these people even talking about? <laughs> Madonna is placing curses now? Uh, let's reconnect with Sarah now. She still doesn't have all of her kids, but she still also uh, hasn't returned to the compound. Um, and she's, and she's you know, she's uh, of course she hasn't. Sorry. Uh, she still doesn't have her kids because she has not returned to the compound and she is surviving in New York City. And I find that beyond impressive for someone raised by Jimmy and Debbie, right? Mr. and Mrs. General Dumbfuck. She has overcome so much. One day in the summer of 2017, Sarah gets a call from an investigator. At first, she thinks it's a prank. Then she gets another call. After a third voicemail, she finally calls back. A year earlier, the local sheriff's department had learned that a 12-year-old boy had died on the compound. He was denied medical treatment, eventually became septic from a case originally, uh, you know, just deemed to be the easily treatable flu. According to one witness, after three weeks of being sick, the malnourished 12-year-old's head becomes deformed. Pus begins leaking from his forehead. He got in some kind of terrible abscess. He first loses his, his ability to speak, then his ability to move on the right side, and he's still not taken to the fucking hospital. And why wasn't he taken to the hospital? Because after Sarah, you know, his uh, adopted daughter was taken to the hospital by General Deb, he was then taken in by authorities, and Deb's worried about authorities seeing what's happening to another child there. It's all just selfish bullshit. Uh, like really sick, untreated people often do, this poor boy dies and then is illegally and improperly buried on the compound's property. No authorities are notified. The sheriff's office, once they finally hear about it, they put out a warrant for the boy's mother's arrest. 
When she's arrested, the woman explains to investigators she did not take her son to the hospital because she wanted to trust God. I'm not sure what verse explicitly states that God hates hospitals. I don't know how that confusion leaks into some uh, you know, Christian groups. Uh, looking into the boy's death, detectives began to learn of other abuses, contact former members to ask about their experiences. And this investigative process brings investigators to Sarah and Sarah tells them her story. Then on August, in August of 2017, after lots of interviews with Sarah and others, Deb is arrested in the middle of one of her Sunday morning services. Hail Nimrod and about time. The general wearing her weird ass uniform was put in handcuffs by some of Satan's minions. She's charged with a horror show of crimes, two counts of kidnapping, eight counts of child abuse, three counts of evidence tampering, four counts of criminal sexual penetration of a child under 13. In a statement posted to the AT, ACMTC's website, they call the allegations, of course, totally false. They say the accusations are just reruns of old lies that have been investigated and shown to be malicious attacks against a legitimate ministry time and time again. It has never been ACMT, it's never been ACMTC, fuck their name, policy to withhold medical attention or deprive anyone from going to the hospital. In fact, many people have received hospital care over the years. Interesting that the post does not address the sexual charges. Uh, three other members are arrested the same day. Among them, Sarah's ex-husband, Peter, who is charged with 100 counts of sexual penetration of a child under 13 and another 100 counts of sexual contact with a child under 13. In particular, he had abused Sarah's adopted daughter, raping her around four times a week, starting before her 10th birthday. Because, you know, uh, I guess that's what God wanted. Uh, he'd tell her that Deborah would beat her if she resisted. Horrors stacked on horrors, kids on compounds. Does it ever fucking go well for them in these places? No, because they're raised by fucking zealot lunatics. Uh, Deb also molested her on several occasions. She would bathe the girl, use her fingers to aggressively penetrate the child, causing her to bleed. I can only imagine what kind of fucked up messages she was relaying to the girl while, while doing this, what kind of scripture she twisted to make it seem like she was doing God's work, something about getting out demons, I'm sure. Definitely going back to that cult mass execution murder fantasy in my head right now. How satisfying to put a bullet right between Debbie Ding Dong's eyes. Her life holds less value for me than that of a fucking housefly, truly. Uh, Jim, too, was subsequently arrested and charged with kidnapping and child abuse, among other crimes. Uh, interestingly, not charged with sexual abuse. Wasn't a male cult leader this time sexual abuse anyone. Uh, it was a woman. Well, leadership-wise. Also, also uh, a dude. Also, according to the Cibola County Sheriff, when the compound was raided for these arrests, authorities find 18 kids living on the, on the compound. No one on the outside had any, had any idea there were that many kids there. According to accounts in the warrant uh, and accounts of former members, or according to the warrant and accounts of uh, former members, an alarm bell would ring whenever cops arrived on the property, at which point the children would be hid. They would hide them in the desert or behind this outhouse on the desert. On Saturday, September 15th, 2018, Sarah took her red eye to Albuquerque for her mom's trial. An undercover cop meets her at the airport, drives her to the city of Grants, about 80 miles east of the compound, the Cibola County seat, around 10,000 people there. State officials assured Sarah it was Deb they were prosecuting, not her, but she was still worried. What if they held her responsible for bringing that girl to Deb, you know, to her mom, uh, to be abused and molested in America? Uh, what if Deb tried to pin cult crimes on her? The prospect of her uh, other kids, now 15 and 17, back in New York being taken from her is terrifying, of course. Before leaving for the trial, she tells them, if for some reason I'm indicted and I have to take the blame for my mother's complete fuck up, you know that I love you. Walking into the courtroom on the day of the testimony, of her testimony, Sarah gets her first good look at her mom in many years. She barely recognizes her. Deb's hair, once thick and vibrant brown, has turned gray and stringy. Her cat green eyes, now vacant, staring out beyond Sarah somewhere. She had withered in the desert, living on delusion and hate and little else for so long. Once Sarah's on the witness stand, the questioning begins in an apparent effort to undercut her credibility. 
Deb's lawyer leans heavily on the self-lacerating emails and letters Sarah had sent in the months following her escape. You acknowledge that you were extremely selfish and only thinking of yourself when you abandoned your kids, correct? He asked, according to court transcripts. Sarah later tries explaining to the jury the confusion, guilt, and shame that defined her life at that time. When you first come out of a cult, you blame yourself for everything, she said. It's like when you're in a really bad relationship, you blame yourself for everything that went wrong. And as you finally distance yourself and you grow and you mature and you get away from it, you realize it was not always your fault. Good on Sarah for likely having gotten some help, probably therapy and working past so much fucking trauma. The next day, Sarah gets in a car, heads to the airport. On the way there, she receives a message from someone at the trial. The girl Sarah had brought to America, Sarah's daughter, now 20 years old, the girl who'd been victimized so much, who just testified against Deb. She wants to see Sarah after 16 years. Heartbreaking. Sarah is overwhelmed. She wonders about the girl's involvement in the trial, but because she'd been told to remain isolated, or she had wondered about the girl's involvement in the trial, but because she'd been told to remain isolated from other witnesses, she assumed that she wouldn't see her. And then after arriving at the airport, Sarah waits anxiously at a restaurant uh, to see this girl just 10 minutes before her flight departs. The girl and her adopted mother appear riding up an escalator. Sarah drops her bags, runs to them. What a fucking scene, like out of a movie. Crying, Sarah and the girl, now a young woman, hug thrilled to see each other. You're so beautiful, Sarah tells her. Thank you for being so brave. The girl tells Sarah she thought she'd lost her forever. Sarah promises to explain everything once she gets back to New York where her other children are waiting. I'm so sorry, she says. I love you so fucking much. I love it. I love that she, uh, the way she talks. On September 21st, 2018, a jury finds Deb guilty of kidnapping, child abuse, and criminal sexual penetration of a child. At the sentencing hearing, Sarah's daughter describes the emotional and physical toll of Deborah's abuse. Emotionally, Excuse me, emotionally, she broke me as a child to the point where I still today struggle with my own self-confidence, my self-esteem, my sense of worth. She asked the judge to give Deb 71 at the time the maximum penalty of 108 years in prison. He didn't give her that, but he gave her plenty, 72 years, a life sentence. Uh, following Deb's conviction, Jim takes a 10-year plea deal, pleading no contest to charges of child abuse, evidence tampering, and accessory to birth and death reporting failures. Wish he would have gotten more. Debbie, Ding, Debbie Ding Dong's lackey, Jimmy Buffalo's son, will be in his 80s, though, when he gets out, if he's still alive. In October 2019, a judge orders the sale of the Fence Lake compound. Uh, I'll be surprised if they got 100 bucks for it. Uh, last Sarah heard, her younger brother, Josh, was living in Albuquerque, according to a letter from Jim. Sarah's two sons, born on the compound, ages 24 and 26, also in Albuquerque. According to the most recent updates available anywhere online, Sarah and her son still do not speak. Sarah suspects they want nothing to do with her because she rejected the ACMTC, and they resent her for leaving. When asked in late 2019 if this estrangement hurts, she says yes and no, comparing the cult to a drug addiction. There's nothing I could possibly do to unwind that, she explained. I mean, I could try, but they're so deep in it. It's all they know. And she knows, you know, about that more than anybody. Uh, still, she continues to live with the guilt from leaving them. As for the girl, 23 years old in 2019, she and Sarah have stayed in touch constantly since the trial, and Sarah even helped reconnect her with her birth mother. Uh, the girl and her birth mother, also now in frequent contact. All my family did was try to destroy her soul, break her down, give her nothing but scars, destroy her as a human, says Sarah. And all these years later, it took one little email to find her mom. It's fucking awesome. I love how Sarah says fuck a lot. Uh, and again, Sarah, she is, a, uh, she is a boss bitch to use that term. Sarah also feels guilt about her daughter. If she hadn't agreed to take her to America, the girl wouldn't have suffered Deborah's abuse. But Sarah is also aware she has a lot to be proud about. Against all odds, she forged a version of the very life she once thought would be only a dream to create. She takes her do a dog running in the park. She makes her kids loaded nachos. She uh, still helps with the occasional baby delivery. 
Uh, she has fulfilled her teenage self's dream of becoming a midwife. At least as recently as the summer of 2019, Sarah was also still staying in contact with Jimmy Buffalo's son and Debbie Ding Dong. You may not know it, but I still love you. Jim wrote from prison in 2019 in July. Uh, I, I still see you and Josh putting your faded suitcases in our old 1966 panel truck going here and there in his service. I miss the good old days before we started the ACMTC. Yeah, I bet he does. I bet listening to some classic rock out in the woods in Northern California and howling at the moon sounds a lot better than sitting in a fucking prison right now to Jim. In another letter, Jim told Sarah a story that he said illustrated he and Deborah's feelings for her. And it also shows how fucking crazy they are once again. I know mom would not want me to tell you this, he wrote, but I feel I must. According to Jim, Deborah had been so distraught after Sarah left Fence Lake that she performed a violent prayer lamentation on her, her behalf. She crawled from the highway to the compound garden, apparently a very long distance, bleeding, crying, and praying all the way for you. Jim joined in this weird spectacle halfway. Can't begin to describe the pain on the hands and knees on the gravel road. He wrote, we prayed for your return. I won't mention this again. You know, fuck Jim. I wish he had to crawl on gravel on his hands and knees every day in prison. Uh, Deb has spent the two and a half years since her conviction, you know, declaring her innocence, of course, fighting for a new trial. After her sentencing, she identified several new pieces of evidence previously unavailable to the defense. She claims uh, the proof she did not sexually abuse the girl. In November 2020, a New Mexico judge did vacate the conviction and she will have a new trial based on this evidence. And I'm guessing she'll probably be found guilty again. Even if she's not found guilty again, she'll still die in prison where she belongs. Uh, and that's where the story of the ACMTC leaves off for now. Uh, let's hope we do not hear from them ever, ever again. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. The Aggressive Christian Mission Training Corps. Not a whole lot of info out there about this cult. Few articles keep uh, up with them or, you know, keep popping up about them over the years. Dr. Phil episodes, a long form article by Sarah Green about her time in the cult. Uh, there's the cult's janky ass website, entries in some other websites dedicated to tracking and archiving cults and not much else. I wonder how many similar cults like this are operating out there in America right now or recently, you know, ended their life cycle. According to that psychologist, right, recognized cult expert Steve Eichel, up to 10,000 cults still exist today in the U.S. And based on American culture, religious history, I bet the majority of them are evangelical offshoots. How many other little mini compounds are out there scattered across America, housing some version of Jimmy Buffalo's son or Debbie Ding Dong, right? 6,000? 7,000? How sad. What a terrible way to go through life, fearing an angry God that no part of me believes in any way has ever existed. Does some sort of God exist? I hope so. I think so. I have no proof. Does the vengeful, merciless God Debbie speaks of exist? The insane sociopath God? I have no proof, but I highly doubt it. I mean, God, if he does, he just sounds like a psychotic asshole who just is going to burn us pretty much no matter what we, what we fucking do down here. Uh, if you're hearing this and you happen to be in one of these cults, which won't call itself a cult, but will oppose questioning— likely monitor your communication with the outside world, ask you to limit, if not cut off ties to your family— uh, you know, uh, and ask you to believe in special doctrines, not associated with any large organized religion. Ask yourself, does what my leader, uh, what my leader is saying actually make any sense? Does it feel like I'm being exploited? Does it feel like I'm being abused? Does it feel like I'm being controlled? Does it feel loving? Does it make me happy to belong here? And if God is who your cult leader says God is, wouldn't that God take you back if you left for a while to explore what life feels like outside the cult? Are you forbidden from ever doing that, from, you know, too much questioning? Why? If your cult leader clearly is in the right, why not let everyone leave and be confident God will bring them back? 
Isn't God supposed to be stronger than the prince of lies? Your life and the ideology you're being sold uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? If it's something similar to the ACMTC. So get out. You'll make new friends, I promise. Find the Cult of the Curious Facebook group. Go buy some mini donuts. Go listen to some stones. Jagger still fucking got it. Let Lucifina into your mind. Allow you to imagine mind-blowing sex with whatever gal or guy you think is hot. Don't feel guilty for thinking they're hot either. Use the imagination you were born with. If you believe in God, the imagination God gave you. Don't feel guilty for grabbing that ween or DJing some lady ween. Enjoy those nerve endings. Stick a finger in your loophole. Live a little. It's your body. You know, some creepy spirit's not watching you from the fucking bushes like some weird cosmic sex offender. Try not to be an asshole. Help others when you can. Pay good deeds forward. Let your heart love. Let your mind be curious. Know that that's enough. Turn the fucking music up. Enjoy the true miracle of just being alive right now. Hail fucking Nimrod. Time for some takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the aggressive Christian Mission Training Corps was a cult that lasted from sometime between 1979 and 1981 when it was founded as Free Love Ministries all the way until 2017, where it died in the New Mexico desert. In 2017, his leaders, Deb Green and her second command, Jimmy Green, also Sarah Green's ex-husband, Peter Green, were arrested for child abuse, molestation, neglect, a whole roster of other crimes, styling themselves as God's army. Their members wore military uniforms and they were wearing them while arrested. Number two, the ACMTC was modeled off the Salvation Army in its earliest incarnation. When husband and wife duo William and Catherine Booth took to the streets of England and then the globe to save souls and, con and convert others to Christianity, Catherine Booth's writing Aggressive Christianity directly inspired the name of Aggression Christian Mission Training Corps and also probably emboldened Deborah to lead the cult. Number three, the 1960s and 70s were especially culturally turbulent times in the U.S. and in many other Western nations during which damn near everything seemed like it was up for question, including religion, letting gurus and leaders with all kinds of intentions take advantage of people who were looking for new meaning in their lives. During this identity chaos, some Christian groups pushed back against a new spiritual rebellion by stepping up their response, taking uh, and talking more vigorously about fighting societal problems like crime, drug abuse, poverty, problems they believed were indicators of Satan's increased presence and strength on earth. Some pushed this message so strongly they became cults. Number four, it is very hard to leave a cult. Sarah Green, after escaping in the summer of 1999, agonized for years about her decision to leave, both in regards to her soul being sent to hell for that decision, also dealing with her guilt about leaving her kids behind with Deb and Jim. Other members would describe similar circumstances. None of what happened to Sarah was her fault. Life hands many of us tough choices and Sarah did not luck out in this regard. Fortunately, Sarah has been reunited with her adoptive daughter and continues to heal from the abuse she suffered. I actually did a little cyber stalking and I found Sarah on Instagram and she seems to be doing so great. She's in phenomenal shape, like inspiring me to start eating a little more consistently better and working out more consistently as well. All her kids are grown now. She seems to be really into uh, quality coffee, Gardening, marathon running, hitting the gym hard, surfing, doing artsy, sexy photo shoots. She really seems to have embraced her inner Lucifina and done a lot of nature goddess, body positive, ages number photo shoots. And she seems to be really living life to the fullest in New York City. And I am so impressed. Fuck yes. If you're hearing this, good on you, Sarah. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, hail the fuck out of you. Love that she turned out to be the real strong woman in this cult, not her fucked up mom. And number five, new info. We talked a little about the ACMTC's views of rock music. Let's hear uh, about these views in a sermon that General Jim Green gave himself back on October 25th, 1987. Uh, he is talking about, to be clear, watching a Christian rock band perform here. If you don't think I'm telling you the truth, mm -hmm. I dare you today 
take a drive down Highway 50 on the left-hand side, there's a certain place there where this man's ministry is, and you go in there and spend one service, and you come back and report to me and tell me what you saw and what you felt and what you heard. Mm -hmm. If you don't think that place has got demon problems, brother, <laughs> then you're not in the spirit. Oh, okay. I went there to a rock and roll concert. I had to see it for myself to Ugh. know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I went there one time where they had a certain rock and roller there. Ugh. And, of course, they was all decked out like they were, the long hair, Ugh. the gaudy clothes, the beards, the hair, you know, the, all the makeup, the whole nine yards of... I like when he says the long hair, the beard. Oh, you mean how Jesus actually looked, you dumb fuck? ...world. And listen, I was in the world. I, I took drugs in the world, and I listened to rock and roll music. Ugh. And I went in the 60s to what they called love ends and be ends. Mm -hmm. And I went to all the rock festivals there was. You, you, were, you were fun once. And I know what I know. And I know rock and roll music when I hear it. Mm -hmm. And I can, and I know <laughs> the flesh when I sense it. Oh. And I know the rock of music will entice a man in certain areas, and I know where it, where it won't. I think, I think by certain areas, he's definitely talking about dick. <laughs> and when these performers got done, the church stood up, if you can call it a church. Ugh. I call it the church of Satan. Hell they yes! Up, they started screaming and applauding. Yuck! Whistling. Woo. And uh, my nose was sensitive. I swore I smelled marijuana and beer. The devil's lettuce! Ugh. And not only that, there was conversations said... Some people were saying, I wish I had some cocaine tonight because, boy, mm -hmm. this sure is good. <laughs> no one's saying that at a Christian rock concert. Uh, this is a lie. I sure wish I had some cocaine here. Enjoy <laughs> this Christian rock with. <laughs> nope. Coming from that congregation. Now, that was a couple, three years ago, and I know for facts and figures and for sure now, uh. by knowing some of those people at yep. that particular church, some of them have received deliverance and some of them have had demons cast out by us. Oh. Thank God and you saved them. And they confess they have a horrible drug problem and a horrible lust problem in that particular church. Blech. And not only that, when those rock and roll stars got done with that place, mm -hmm. they went to a place up north and they was playing in a bar. Oh, in a bar? Gross. I went by that same bar one time. Their name was on the outside. The same people what? was in that church performing in a, as a Christian act. What? With alcohol nearby? Like wine? That's one time, and they have them every Saturday night there. If you don't, if you went last night, you would have probably heard who knows who. Could have been Striper even. <laughs> yes, Striper reference. <laughs> He's accused Striper of being satanic. Striper is too much. For Jim Green, to hell with the devil, to hell with the aggressive Christian mission training corps. Glad their leaders are in prison. Fuck them. Fuck this tool, Jim. And uh, <laughs> let's get out of here. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The ACMTC has been sucked. Hope none of Deb's former followers have decided to pick up where she left off. Man, life's short. Just enjoy it. Don't fucking live in this sad way. Thank you to the Bad Magic, uh, Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Sophie the Fact Sorceress Evans for running point on this week's research. Uh, Zach Flannery, the scriptkeeper, for producing this episode. Bit Elixir for continuously refining the Time Suck app. Logan Art Warlock Keith running badmagicmerch.com. Uh, working on the socials with Liz Hernandez. Her nickname is long overdue, by the way. I got to do some cult housekeeping. Uh, Liz, Liz runs the Cult of the Curious Facebook private page along with her all-seeing eyes. Thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad running Discord. 
You can link to the Time Suck Discord group through the Time Suck app. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we cover a man whose bloodlust was only outshined by his other trait, his extreme nerdiness and his stupidity. Uh, Mark Twitchell, native of Edmonton, Canada, was a would-be serial killer whose obsessions with the TV show Dexter led him to be given the moniker the Dexter Killer. When he murdered Johnny Altinger after luring him into a garage by claiming to be a woman on the dating website plentyoffish.com. Dexter was only the latest of Mark Twitchell's obsessions. Uh, the man was a super nerd. It's been fun to research. Uh, he spent countless hours on Star Wars forums making costume replicas of his favorite characters, even putting together his own prequel fan movie, which he called Secrets of the Rebellion. Uh, but Mark Twitchell, despite his intense desire to be a famous filmmaker, would never be one. He ended up going down as a wannabe serial killer instead. And I say wannabe because although Mark Twitchell wanted to kill many, only the very unfortunate Johnny would die at his hands. Uh, he tried to attack another man just the week before. He wanted to attack many afterwards, but uh, he was uh, real bad at covering his tracks. If the police hadn't caught him in the weeks following Johnny's murder, uh, Twitchell would have for sure killed again. He idolized Dexter Morgan, the blood spatter analysis serial killer character who hides in plain sight by working at the Miami PD. Uh, Twitchell had fantasies of being the real life version of this fictional man, but he just wasn't even close to as smart. Oh man, he, uh, he also considered himself to be a filmmaker, and thought he could use his elaborate horror movie sets as a cover for any murders he committed. He'd be wrong. Uh, once friends and family of Johnny Altinger got police to start taking Johnny's disappearance seriously, which didn't take long, the trail almost immediately led to Mark Twitchell's garage and to Mark himself. And then when police obtained his laptop, they found a document called SK Confessions on it, as in serial killer. He made it so easy to be convicted. They read Twitchell's account of exactly how he lured Johnny to the garage, attacked him, and disposed of the body. They read about how Twitchell reveled in keeping his dark thoughts from his wife and eight-month-old daughter. Uh, Mark tried to convince him that he wrote, uh, not a confession, but just the plot of a film. No. He uh, he told a lot of stupid uh, excuses to the police. They bought none of them. It's, it's an insane story. It's comical just how fucking deluded and dumb this guy is, and, uh, and I'm excited to tell it next week. Uh, for right now, let's head to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Opening with a nice reminder from Cool Meat Sack, Alan Neva, this week. Alan writes, Wackadoodle reminder. Hello, Master Sucker. I'm a longtime listener. Started about 15 months ago, making my way through the back catalog. I just finished the Harry Tubman Suck. Came, uh, something came to mind when you talked about the Underground Railroad. You talked about how many people on the web thought that it was a literal underground railroad of hundreds of miles of train underground. When I was a young kid in early grade school, I absolutely remember thinking, how did anyone build a literal underground railroad in the 19th century? I am now a firearms instructor, and I have been literally asked in a class, which end does the bullet come out of? <laughs> I could have asked something like, how fucking stupid are you? But Nimrod thankfully intervened, and I calmly told him the correct answer. If I instinctively reverted to, reverted to thinking this idiot is a fucking moron, I would have never advanced the will of Nimrod and increased the average knowledge of my fellow meat sacks. I once thought in early grade school that Harry Tubman ran a real underground railroad. It wasn't until later in school that I realized that the underground railroad Railroad was figurative in name. I just wanted to bring up my story to remind us all that Nimrod, excuse me, that Nimrod does not always make himself aware to everyone early on. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that everyone does not have the same experiences that we do. Someone can ask a question that might seem stupid in the moment, but that person might be someone that has been misinformed throughout their life and does not really know any better. We all must be aware that all meat sacks have our own inherent flaws that are unique to us in our life experiences. Every one of us has something to learn from everyone else. 
Please don't take a single experience from a fellow meat sack as the absolute gospel on who that meat sack really is. You don't know the previous experiences that meat sack has had. I know I'm rambling, but I just wanted to remind everyone of empathy. Hail Nimrod, praise Bojangles, meat sacks. I love that message, Alan. You are 100% right. We don't know where someone else is coming from most of the time. And our interaction with them or what we're seeing of them online could be the exception to the rule also, not the rule. We could be catching them just a particularly bad moment. Or like, you know, you alluded, you alluded to, they could have just been dealt a very different hand than we have, which led them to saying something we recognize as ignorant, hateful, crazy, whatever. But they just, you know, truly don't know any better. They might, they might know a lot in other areas as well where we may be comparatively ignorant. Uh, I really like your message of empathy, something I have to constantly work on. Uh, keep making sure uh, everyone knows which end of the gun the bullets come out of, please. I'm no shooting instructor, but I do know that's pretty important when it comes to firearm instruction. Uh, and hail Nimrod. Uh, now for a very timely update, considering this week's topic, uh, you know, uh, considering this week's topic, excuse me, reminiscing sack, Emily Couture writes, hello, Sockmaster. This may be a little lengthy, but stick with me. My friend and I were recently talking about our memories from our Wisconsin college. We remembered a strange week in 2018. Her and I were both approached by and invited to join a cult. I was at uh, my cheap apartment with my then ex-boy, with my then boyfriend. There was a knock on my door. We were not expecting anyone. I opened the door. There were two college-age girls. They asked me if I believed in God, which I responded, not really. <laughs> they then went on to say that they were all about peace and love and the usual culty things and invited me to join them for a seminar that day where their pastor could explain everything. I lied and told them I had to work. I don't think they believed me, but they left. Meanwhile, my friend Kay was shopping at Walmart when she was approached by a group of two boys and two girls, all college-aged. They asked if she believed in God. She said she couldn't say yes or no to that. They began to question her so aggressively that a Walmart employee approached and asked her if everything was okay. Uh, one of the guys was so upset that she would not go with him immediately that he was visibly shaking. Jesus. One of the girls said they were only asking about homework, and then they all turned and walked away. Within two days, our university sent out a school-wide email warning of a religious group hanging around town, asking people to go places with them. The email told us specifically, do not go anywhere with them. From my research all these years later, I've determined the group was the Narrow Pathway, a religious cult with roots in Wisconsin. Uh, when allegations of spiritual abuse were made public in 2016, the group left, moved to Texas. There isn't a lot of info out on their group, but I did include the Who We Are page from their website that no longer exists. Guess I missed my chance to join a cult. Oh, well, maybe next time. M. Yikes, M. I checked out your link and I tried to find more info. There, there is a WordPress site dedicated to exposing this particular cult called Tales from the Cult. Uh, from their Who We Are, it says... Uh, that was archived, you know, uh, on the web. The narrow pathway has one goal, to help people enter God's kingdom. Nothing else matters to us. We aren't interested in religion or traditions. We're not influenced by the current trends in church ministry. Oh, oh sorry, sorry. We're, we are not interested in the religion of traditions. We're not influenced by the current trends in church ministry. We know our purpose, to enter through the narrow gate and walk the narrow pathway that leads to life. We wouldn't leave it for anything. The narrow pathway isn't for everybody. It wasn't made for the masses to travel. It doesn't comfort a lot of people because it leaves no room for negotiation with Jesus. Cult, cult, cult. Uh, he laid out a clear-cut pathway that is difficult to walk. Oh boy, get it, get out to the desert. But the reward is totally worth it. It's everything we've ever wanted. Love, joy, peace, rest, freedom, and life to the fullest. These aren't theoretical for us. They're our reality. Man, allusions to suffering. Allusions to having some kind of special outside the church angle on heaven, right? Promises of having everything you've ever wanted if you just follow their path, M. They never make it clear over a few pages what this fucking path entails. Of course not. I'm sure it's too crazy to post. You know, you gotta you gotta bring people in, talk to them for a while before you uh, 
Spring that on him. You gotta slowly drag him into your crazy. Gosh dang, glad you're not on a compound right now having your poop hole loopholed by some David Koresh type. 10,000, roughly 10,000 of these cults out in the U.S. right now. Uh, important, thank you for sharing that message. Important message now regarding sexual assault survivors and Jody Arias coming from an anonymous and awesome sucker who writes, hello team of all the names. <laughs> Jody Arias is the embodiment of false reporting. A lot of women who suffer sexual assault don't report to the police out of fear of not being believed and this bitch is why. I was assaulted when I was 21 and I never even thought to report it. I was at a bar with a girlfriend, let a guy buy me a couple beers. We all played some pool. Then he kissed me. It was a little magical. My friend went off to call her boyfriend and shit got bad. If that guy had asked me back to his motel room, I would have accepted, but that's not what happened. Without getting graphic, I did not unbutton or take my own pants off in the parking lot that was visible from the road. Uh, after that night, I struggled with anorexia, depression, PTSD, which I'd already been struggling with. The friend I was with didn't believe me, so I just withdrew. I eventually was voluntarily committed to a county-run mental hospital. It was an experience in gratitude. I've come a long way. I have a good understanding husband now, a healthy, happy family. Fuck Jody for setting women back 20 years for faking abuse. That bitch should have gotten the chair. Love you all. Love you, Anonymous. Sorry you had to experience that bullshit. Good on you for pushing on, fighting, building a beautiful life despite being insult assaulted by some roofing rapist coward fuck. Uh, I hope he's getting his poop hole loophole in prison somewhere. And yes, Women who cry wolf or rape is concerned, they do set things back so much for other women or men I know who, who are actual rape survivors, right? But generally women who have to fight a lack of belief and support from those around them, just like you did, partially because of people exactly like Jody Arias. How about we all agree not to rape or falsely report rape anymore? Can we all shake on it? I wish it was that easy. Uh, one more, a big one from a big brain meat sack, right reverent and worshipful and might and my right well-beloved Lord Dan of Suckton, I recommend me unto you full-heartedly, desiring to hear of your welfare, fair, fair Jesus Christ, which I beseech Almighty Nimrod long for to persevere unto his pleasure and your heart's desire. And if it pleases you to hear of my welfare, I am not in good health or body, nor of heart, nor shall it be till I hear from you. And then he goes, dear Dan, I'm writing today to offer my thoughts on your recent sucks of usual of unusual mental disorders and killer kids. So yeah, a little while back. I would have written earlier, but I'm still catching up on episodes. As a forensic child psychiatrist, I had a few thoughts. Overall, I think you did an excellent job of presenting these topics in a way that can help all of us appreciate the meat sacks. That meat sacks go through a whole lot in life and we all have different experiences. I continue to appreciate your message of get help for yourself if you need it. But first, the important part of this message. My wife and I will come to see you this coming weekend in Spokane, yay. We'll be traveling from Butte. We'll be waving like mad idiots as we transit through Coeur d'Alene as we have no idea where you live or where the suck dungeon is. But should you feel a strange gust of air on Saturday, know that it, well, probably isn't us because you shouldn't really feel us waving. Uh, I hope you had fun at that show, by the way. I'm so nervous for it right now. It'd be the first show in like a year and a half. Uh, so back to the original topic of this message, I thought I would share with you a few thoughts about mental health and in particular child mental health. 13% of youth age 8 to 15 live with mental illness severe enough to cause significant impairment to their day-to-day -day lives. This figure jumps to 21% in youth age 13 to 18. Half of all lifetime cases of mental illness begin by age 14 and three quarters by age 24. Early identification and intervention improve outcomes for children before these conditions become far more serious, more costly, and difficult to treat. Despite the availability of effective treatment, there are average delays of 8 to 10 years between the onset of symptoms and intervention critical developmental years in the life of a child. In our nation, nearly 80% of youth with mental illness do not receive treatment. That's terrible. Unfortunately, there are significant individual and societal costs associated with untreated mental illness in children. Approximately 50% of students age 14 and older with mental illness drop out of high school. 
the highest, the highest dropout rate of any disability group. 90% of those who die by suicide have mental illness. Uh, suicide is the third leading cause of death for youth age 15 to 24. More youth and young adults die from suicide than from all natural causes combined. 70% of youth in state and local juvenile justice systems have mental illness with at least 20% experiencing severe symptoms. At the same time, juvenile facilities fail to adequately address the mental health needs of youth in their custody. Given the early onset of emotional and behavioral disorders, the Institute of Medicine estimates that their subsequent indirect and direct costs on the economy equal $247 billion annually. We know that early intervention is important and that just treating the child is not sufficient. We need to involve families in care to help families learn to better support their kids and one another. Why, why, why can't you just tell them to pray and fast everything away? Huh. Uh, this directly speaks to the notion of killer kids. In your Killer Kids episode, you discuss the ideas of nurture versus nature. I think you hit it right on that combination. Uh, I think you hit it right on that that combination is what predicts a perfect storm. As to nature, for example, we know from Dutch twin studies that certain genetic makeups will produce amazingly successful people if they are raised in a positive environment, but sociopaths if raised in a negative environment. Of course, this also speaks to nurture. Uh, let's take a uh, look at nurture, uh, specifically trauma. We know that trauma is, is dose-dependent. That is, the more trauma we receive, even if small traumas, it builds up and can be damaging to our brains. The CDC Kaiser Permanente Adverse Childhood Experience Study has shown us the impact that trauma has on development in later life. So what is adverse childhood experience, at least for the purposes of this study? It includes emotional abuse, emotional neglect, physical abuse, physical neglect, sexual abuse, witnessing domestic violence, substance abuse in the household, mental illness in the household, parental separation or divorce, or an incarcerated household member. The study shows that the more ACEs you experience, the greater your risk for negative outcomes throughout all aspects of your life. That includes increases for the risk of smoking, alcohol use, depression, asthma, stroke, heart disease, unemployment, dropping out of high school, teenage pregnancy, involvement in sex trafficking, difficulty forming relationships, just to name a few. Unfortunately, these events are not uncommon. About 61% of adults report they have experienced at least one type of ACE, and one in six report four or more types. The lifetime economic burden of, of substantiated child abuse and neglect, approximately $400 billion. We can do better in society. We need to support our kids. We need to learn to be better meat sacks. Perhaps that is why I like Time Suck so much. While you, Dan, are often irreverent, your humor brings us together to address dark topics in a way that allows us all to learn. The community you develop pushes people towards acceptance and support rather than derision and isolation. Well done. Now, two random thoughts. One, I grew up in Great Falls. They ate Paul in. Good times. <laughs> That's a place I talked about being my, one of the biggest hell gigs I've ever faced. Uh, two, misophonia is a bitch. I have it, no question. While not an official diagnosis yet, there is active research into it, if only for effective treatment. Thanks for what you're doing with this podcast, for the community you've created, and do not apologize for the length of this email. See you next weekend. Respectfully submitted in the name of Showbiz and Bojangles, the Lord Reverend Thomas Hoffman, MD, Faithful Space Lizard. Well, thank you for that uh, information, for the education, Lord Reverend Thomas. I hope I don't suck too bad in Spokane again. Uh, and uh, more youth and young adults die from suicide than from all natural causes combined. How terribly sad. Yes, we can do better. Thanks for doing what you do. Thanks for trying to catch kids before they fall too far. And it's so difficult to catch them and help bring them back up. Yeah, get help if you need it. The alternatives, suffering and or death don't sound fucking good, do they? And come back to another show that was uh, was not essentially my first night back from a forced retirement, Thomas, if, I, if it wasn't funny. <laughs> uh, thanks for the messages, everybody. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. 
Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. I thought this was going to be a small episode again. I'm a blabbermouth. Please don't scare anyone into believing you're, uh, you know, uh, you're a snack recipe receiving military garb wearing striper hating prophet sent to save souls from the fiery pits of hell this week. Just keep on sucking. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.